Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 1979, a mysterious stranger appeared in the sleepy town of Elberton, Georgia, a city that claims the title, the granite capital of the world. The man referred to himself as R.C. Christian. He claimed to represent a small group of concerned Americans who desired to erect a monument for the benefit of mankind. Written upon the granite structure are what are sometimes called the Ten Commandments of the New Age. Some believe they hold a sinister meaning. I've seen published tracts saying that those ten guides are the Ten Commandments of the Antichrist. The most disturbing is the first, to maintain humanity under 500 million in perpetual balance with nature. With the world's population at well over 7 billion people, that would mean that many would have to die. What is he advocating doing? Killing everybody else in the world? And they interpret that as meaning favoring abortion and or genocide. It's the only way to, to get us down to 500 million people is, of course, the extinction of millions upon millions, billions of innocent people. Okay, we're here on Conspiranormal, and on the line I have Mr. Scotty Roberts, good friend of the show, and the and founder, one of the founders of uh, Intrepid Paradigm Broadcasting Network, along with Rocky Stucci and John Ward, uh, Intrepid Magazine, uh, Intrepid Paradigm, and uh, also we're what we're going to talk about tonight a little bit is about the Paradigm Symposium that uh, he's put together, and I believe it's in its uh, going to be its fourth year 
this year, right, Scotty? Yes, this will be the fourth year of the Paradigm Symposium. Yeah, we're planning on coming up. Uh, we're real excited about it. Going to be uh, <laughs> be mixing it in with you guys up there. That'll and, be fantastic. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And Scotty, you're a good friend of the show. We we've had you on back at the I think yeah. like the first one we had you on was like episode 18, and then somewhere in the 20s you were in there. And then I had you and Rocky on back in uh, April with the, the show that I did with uh, yes. Dr. Heiser. You guys are kind of like the pro the the short and sweet prologue to that. Oh boy. But, uh, <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about how uh, you started doing your company, the Intrepid magazine and how that whole thing started. And then kind of like, you know, the idea for the paradigm symposium came from. Sure. Well, um, I started, uh, the whole thing really started with Intrepid magazine back in 2000, late 2010, um, I had been working as the editor-in-chief for Taps Para magazine uh, with the Ghost Hunters from Sci-Fi Network. And uh, I had been with them for about a year and a half, and I left that outfit and founded my own magazine. And uh, that was uh, December of 2010. Our first issue came out in February of 2011 with Chip Coffee on the cover. He was the, wow. of the preview edition. Then we had Walter Crittenden on issue number one about two months later. And uh, I don't know if you hear yelling in the background, but yeah, I, I sure hear do. screaming. Yeah, <laughs> you can keep that or edit that out. That's, <laughs> that's called that's called the man who is married to a woman who is absolutely inundated by small children, so uh, losing her mind. So, folks, there you've heard it almost live on radio. So like a scream from hell, kind of uh, a little bit. Like yeah, a- yeah, that would have been an, if you were listening to EVPs. You go, wait, did you hear that? Right. <laughs> so. Yes, that that was my my poor wife uh, going absolutely insane. So you've heard it here first. So uh, uh, in 2011, I uh, we started launching the magazine, and that ran for about a year. And Micah Hanks was doing a lot of writing for me for the magazine, and uh, working with me on the magazine. And he kind of proposed, "Hey, we got to do an event for December of 2012, 1212." Yeah. And uh, um. So uh, he came up with something, and and, uh, we played with it for a little bit and said, you know what, Christmas is going to be an awfully hard time to do that event. Let's move it up a couple of months, and and let's do, uh, we called it the Paradigm Symposium. And that was our first year, October 2012. We had uh, most of the cast of Ancient Aliens was at the show. And, uh, you know, not to plant too deeply that I am an ancient alienist, uh, I am open to the possibilities, but it's not something I pursue with uh, with great fervor. Well, you're um, definitely not a Sitchinite. That's one. Thing uh, I'm. Like. That's one thing I like about you, Scotty. I'm definitely things, not. But, yeah. Um. You know, I like to say about Sitchin, he may have been onto something, but uh, I think his scholarship was very untidy, to yeah. put it politically correct. <laughs> not that I'm politically correct either, uh, but. We started the Paradigm Symposium 2012, we went 2013, 14, and now we've got 2015 coming up. And it's going to be uh, October of this year, the first through the fourth, the first weekend in October. It's in Minneapolis. It's at the Crown Plaza, which is five minutes from the Minneapolis-St. Paul International Airport, five minutes from the Mall of America, and which is pretty cool. And we're all contained in a site. We've got done different places every year. And uh, sometimes we've been at sites where you get a shuttle in from the hotel to the site where you're doing the actual event and then back and so on. And so this is nice. We're going to be once again self-contained in a hotel. Oh, excellent. Excellent. 
It, I've heard the Mall of America. That place is just absolutely huge. Like you could spend days in that thing. It is. You know, I'm I'm used to it now. I've been there probably ten times since they've built the thing. But you get used to it really quick. You know. You know. Okay, that's the door I come in on. And now if I turn here, I'm going to pass the you know the French fry place on this level, and then I know I'm not lost. So. Right. Um, so uh, yeah, it's a big place. It's uh, and it's still going. It's thriving, which is pretty cool. Right, absolutely. Uh, so the hotel that you're that that you're in, what was the name of the hotel again? It's called the Crown Plaza, and uh, I I don't think it's Crown Plaza Suites. Just the Crown Plaza Hotel, and uh, it is right near the Mall of America. Right, near, it's right across the big freeway strip from the from the airport, which is very nice. And um, so we'll be setting up the whole the whole shebang. Right inside there. What are some of the past speakers and uh, some of the past speakers that have been there before? And also, you know, who do you have returning this sure. year? Well, you know, our first year, um, our big uh, sh- our, our big deal with the first year was getting all the ancient alien guys here. So we had Eric Von Daniken here. We had Giorgio Sukulis. We had Philip Coppins, who very sadly passed away just two months after that. Um, we had a, a few other people that you'd recognize and we had what I like to call and no offense to any of my speakers. Cause I put myself in this category, you know, the smaller names, meaning we're not big TV household names in these circles, but a lot of the authors and a lot of the pundits and a lot of the, um, uh, the opiners in these fields. And we've got a handful of those people that seem to be our regulars that come back every year. You know, we've got a pretty regular family that comes. There's like Micah Hanks and there's like oh, uh, yeah. L- Laird Scranton and John Ward and me. And we've got, uh, who else is a, is a fairly regular, um, we've got, uh, Tom Fusco. This will be his third year coming back. I've got Tom um, coming on this show in a couple of weeks. Yeah, he's great. He's doing some work oh, actually with a week, really. well, too. Yeah. Uh, Nick Redfern has been here every year and, uh, uh, everybody's familiar with Nick, just prolific author in these fields. We've had, uh, a, I think you just named like all four of like my last, my previous guests. Or nice, nice. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we've got some returning guests here, though. This is their second year, like Richard Dolan. He was here last year, coming back this year. Barry Fitzgerald from uh, Ghost Hunters International fame. Uh, you know, that's he does a hell of a lot more than that, but that's that's where he got his big notoriety. Uh, he'll be yeah, back. What else, is he, what else is he into? Because, uh, you know, I only know him from uh, Ghost Hunters International. Yeah. What he's, else does he study? He's got a, a website called charmstealer.com. And uh, what he is doing with, with Charmstealer is uh, um, he researches a lot of these earth mysteries, uh, a lot of, like, like some of the books would probably explain it the best. Uh, you know, he's done books like The Complete Approach, and this is like the ghost hunting and researching this stuff, The Influence, uh, My Home. And now he's getting into, he got into books like In the Mist of Gods. Uh, I remember that was about three or four years ago he came out with that. And he was, that's when he was doing all the cave exploration in Ireland, especially in different places around Europe and the world where, you know, you hear it's, it's the whole thing of the underworld and the voices from the underworld and so on. The things beneath our feet, as he would say. Uh, he's written about the she, and, the, and, and if any of you see this word, it's spelled S-I-D-H-E, the she, or the she, and it's talking about, uh, you know, the banshee uh, and things like that. And uh, you've got, uh, and by the way, I am at home, 
So you're you're going to hear a lot of things. I'm in my uh, studio at home. I, I hear <laughs> yelling coming through my of children through my headsets. So all good, Scotty. It's so all you're good. all picking that up. Uh, I'm in my home office, and there it is. Uh, I always say the the most beautiful thing about officing and working at home is that I'm always around my wife and children. And I always say the most horrific thing about working at home is that I'm always around my wife and children. So there is no escape. I'm a dad. Um, uh, there you go. Uh, anyway, you, so those are the kind of books he writes, and, and those are the things he's researching. Uh, uh, he climbs up into the mountains, into the caves, and finds the old tunnels and the old all the old stuff that, that, that goes with the old worship. And uh, so uh, he's got a pretty interesting thing going with what he does. Okay. Excellent. And uh, Peter Robbins is someone I'm going to have on the show yeah. next, uh, next September. And, you know, I think he talks a lot about the um, uh, Rendlesham Forest event. Yeah, yeah he wrote uh, um, Left of East Gate. Um, he was co-author on that, but uh, the big book about the Rendlesham Forest uh, incident. And uh, he's been a UFO researcher for, I think, 30 years. Uh, yeah. So he, he's he's pretty amazing guy. He's going to be here. He's going to be here along with... The producer, and I, I've lost her name in my in the squirrelness of my head, but uh, the producer of the new movie, Travis, uh, Travis Walton, is going to be here, and we all oh, yeah, know who Travis is. And uh, uh, so they put up together a new documentary, which we're going to be screening at the at the symposium. And uh, Travis will be here speaking as well. We've got Lon Milo Duquette is going to be our our keynote speaker. Uh, Lon is a very interesting man. Um, he is probably somebody that you would consider uh, one of the most esoteric uh, driven men. Uh, he's a he's a rabbi. Uh, he's he's uh, he's a writer. He's a lecturer. Um, he's got this. Uh, he's in the the and I don't even know how to pronounce some of these things, but the if I'm pronouncing it right, the Ordo Templi Orientis. There you go. It's you got it. A, a religious, this fraternal organization. He's been uh, uh, one of the foremost Crowley scholars that's out there. Wow. And uh, written a lot of books on magic and things like that. But he's going to be our keynote. I actually got some criticism from somebody saying, I can't believe you're having Lon Milo Duquette as your keynote speaker. You know, do you really want to have that? And I say, I think Lon Milo Duquette, while he doesn't represent everything about us, he represents what we're about. And that is exploring the unknown, which is all that esoterics and occultism and all of that really is. People get the wrong idea about the word occultism. I'm no occultist by definition. But there are people who speak at our symposium that are occultist. Now, occultist doesn't mean Satan. I worship Satan. Um, uh, it means, yeah, you know, somebody is studying the great unknown mysteries of the past. It's yeah. got an ancient connotation that has nothing to do with the devil. And uh, uh, so we've got Lon Milo is going to be there. Randall Carlson. He was here last year, but he was not a speaker. He was a friend that came along with Graham Hancock who had spent uh, quite a amount of time uh, traveling with uh, Randall out in the West. And he's part of the, his organization is Sacred Geometry International. And uh, you can find out more about him at, uh, there. And, of course, we've got Micah back. And we've got Rita Louise was here the first year. She's coming back, Dr. Rita Louise. We've got Ed Nightingale, who has never spoken before a group before last year, who did a lot of research on the Giza Plateau. Now, it seems like there's a hell of a lot of people that... I've got a new book on the Giza Plateau, and you're like, I've read it, uh, I think, at least in at least in ten other formats. But what Ed brings to it is mathematics. He, he's 
it was he had a very interesting presentation last year, very heavy, and so he's he's trying to make sure he works that up so it's a little more user friendly. But uh, about all the mathematics of the buildings at Giza, and and uh, it just an amazing presentation. It'll blow your mind. Um, and uh, we got another uh, another Edward. We got Edward James Swagger, and uh, Swagger's an Irishman. Uh, does a lot of monolithic work, uh, megalithic work, and uh, he's going to be here talking about that stuff. And I'm trying to think who I haven't hit yet. Uh, we talked about Laird Scranton. He's going to be here, and. Uh, Sarah Soderland is going to be new to the paradigm this year. She's been a friend of mine for about 10 years, but she's uh, started as she was known far and wide as paranormal Sarah. And uh, she did some psychic readings and stuff like that. And a lot of the events that I went to, and she's now got a show on uh, the IB, uh, IPBN uh, alternative talk radio network. Yep, We come on uh, right after her. After, after oh, her. that's right. On yeah. uh, Thursdays. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she does Mysteries of the Mind. She's a Ph.D. candidate right now getting her Ph.D. in forensic psychology. Uh, so it's going to be she's going to be a very interesting guest. Rocky Stucci, of course, is going to be speaking. And uh, he's the, the the titular head of the I, I always like that word. Titular. <laughs> um, people always think you're going to start saying something. That's like that's like saying and the niggardly host followed me. Right, right, right. Did right, you just right. say? Uh, yeah, it has nothing to do with race, buddy. Um, so uh, he's going to be there. Uh, Jessalyn Wildflower Devereaux is going to be there. She's very much uh, the, into the psychic stuff and the self-healing stuff and the healership and all of that stuff. So <laughs> all I, I can I, do is laugh with the background noise here. I can hear the screams well, of the children. Yes. Scotty. Yes. Well, that's that. That's fine. You know, uh, um, the fun thing about being on your broadcast is I can bring my children with me. Uh, yeah. so, I have no idea the carnage that is going on outside the studio, but it's 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 a it must be intense because it's piercing the soundproofness of my room. So, uh, or or that could be speaking to the lack of soundproofness of my room. I'm sure, there's some minor warfare going on in the in the it's, rumpus room right now. They're they're either playing and they're running down the hall shooting bows and arrows at each other or something. I don't know what it is. So, uh, how many and, small children do you have? Have Scotty? too many. Far too many for too a man. Many. <laughs> uh, I, I was actually all done. Uh, you know, I was married once before, and I had my. I've got my twenty-three-year-old twin daughters uh, who are. You know, they run their own business. They moved it to Hawaii. They're living in paradise, doing amazing wow. things. And uh, then I've got my fourteen-year-old son who also lives with me. And uh, then I remarried uh, almost eight years ago now. I've been divorced for 12 years, and I've been remarried for eight years, and uh, we had children. Uh, she had never had children before, and so it was like, hey, I want to have kids. And I'm like, hey, I've been there already. She's come on. And, you know, guys, girls, all the stuff they do. And uh, boom, kids. I got uh, three new ones. So I've got my six-year-old son and my three-year-old daughter and my now seven-month-old baby girl. And I have made sacrifices to the gods and done taken appropriate measures to make sure it never happens again. Scott, you have done your duty for 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 population for God and country. Yeah, you, no <laughs> negative population growth in the uh, Roberts house. Oh hell no! Yeah, China, <laughs> I'd be in prison by now. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, we were talking about some of the some of the people that were going to be there. Um, yeah, you know what, what's some of the uh, do, do you know a lot about the presentations that people are going to be given, like yourself? Uh, I, Dr. I don't Ward, know. 
I don't know the exact presentations that other people will be giving other than, you know, in their fields, of course, the things that they're into. We've got a, we've got a few people, you know, like in you, you could say in ufology and ufological history, things like that. You've got guys like Rich Dolan, uh, uh, Peter Robbins, uh, Travis Walton. Uh, you're going to see in the more of the paranormal and the uh, and and I, I I've grown to hate the word paranormal because it has become such a a caricature of itself. Um, mostly because of the community that's out there, and uh, you know I've got good friends in the community, but I, I think the community is it's uh it, it's cannibalistic. It eats itself. It vies for the spotlight, and it's become a joke. Uh, but you've got good people who are part of the field as opposed to the community, like Barry Fitzgerald. And, and he does some things that really lie outside the paranormal realm, but he gets paranormal realm, but he gets stuck in that uh, pigeonhole very easily. He's into research and some of the, uh, you know, it, it's even hard to figure out how to, how to, how to plug exactly what he does. Cause it's not strictly paranormal. It is into the, uh, uh, the sciences, the, the kind of weird occultic uh, esoteric sciences that are out there. And the things that are natural things, but they lie outside the natural. So there you go. I think there's been a shift in a lot of uh, attitudes because, you know, about 10 years ago when Ghost Hunters, you know, TAPS was the big thing, had just pretty much come out at that point. And everybody got, a lot of people got into that. But I think since then, there's some of us that have just kind of like, you know, we, 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 been there, done the ghost thing, and now we kind of moved on from it and are looking into other areas, other avenues. Right. And I, I think that's really where Barry is. He started out there. He's back there again. Uh, he's he's doing some filming. They're trying to get a series together, and I don't know if it's going to be a web series or something with the, in Great Britain or the U.K. Um, him being Irish, he would say the U.K., um, so, uh, um, he's working on a lot of that. Uh, and, and of course you got a, a host of authors that are all, you know, everything from ancient mysteries to conspiracies to, um, oh, let's see, uh, uh, what is Laird? Laird is the same thing, you know, ain't really ancient cosmology. Yes. Laird, uh, John and I, we, we don't know quite what we're going to be speaking on yet, but, uh, but we'll be good at whatever we do. We're sure of it. Uh, <laughs> last year at the symposium, we just set up two high back wing chairs on the stage in the corner of the stage with a little table and a, and a, like, like a little, uh, uh, lounge lamp, you know, our library lamp. And we had a, on the table, we had a, a bottle of port and a couple of glasses. And, uh, so we poured ourselves some port and we sat back and just did our talk. I'm sure John is going to talk a lot about uh, their new discoveries at Gebel El Silsila. And so can we extend that to maybe like, like four or five hours and we can just watch you and oh, yeah. just get steadily more and more inebriated oh, as, as time goes on. There's, there's nothing better than sitting on stage in front of a live audience and feeling the warm come over. Again. <laughs> so no, neither, neither of us. Got John, as John would say, I don't drink. I'm not, I'm a teetotaler. He would say, and right. he does drink on rare occasions, but, uh, I'm, I'm a, Oh, you know, when, when you, when you start off early in your career, you, you, I wasn't a writer at first. I was, I did a lot of art. I worked in advertising and I was an illustrator and a designer and I, and all that stuff. And the writing came gradually and you get this, this view of yourself as being, um, I like to have my, my pipe or my cigarette in my lips 
while I'm sitting at my old typewriter banging out a good novel uh, or a good story, and I've got uh, my bottle of bourbon sitting on the table next to me, you know, and that's that's the romantic picture you get of, your, of yourself. Right. So, you know, I used to say, I'm well, I'm a notoriously, I'm a notorious drinker, I would tell people, but I don't drink a lot. But I, when I do drink, I like what I drink. I like single malt Highland Scotch. Oh, laddie, it's got to start with a a Ben Glenn Bal Dal O or Mac in order to be real. Uh, if it's this a, as long as you don't end up like um, William Faulkner or Dylan oh, Thomas, you'll be okay. Oh yeah, or <laughs> yeah, exactly, uh, or Hemingway. You yeah. know, a notorious drunks. Uh, no, I, I I'm not that kind of notorious drunk. Uh, <laughs> I think it's kind of the picture that gets put out there. You know, you like your bourbon or your scotch, and you like your cigar or your pipe, and and uh, you like to sit alone and type in the dark uh, with your little table lamp. And, and you know, that that's the romantic pictures you view of yourself. And, you know, you've seen the memes out there of all different kinds of professions. You know, what my mom thinks I do, what my friends think I do, what yeah. I think I look like. With, right, right. You know, and, uh, you know, it's kind of like that. So um, really being a writer is sometimes it, it's – it's it's like uh hmm it's like it's like i think flying an airplane uh or a jumbo jet you know it's it's like it's like 10 hours of calm punctuated by panic on both ends and it's like uh you know when i got the the contract to do my first book with new page books on the rise and fall of the nephilim uh, it was like, yes, I got a contract. I got a, whew, I got a contract. And you go and you do the happy dance and you, and you have a couple of drinks and you go, okay. And then the next morning comes and it's, you know, it's morning. It's a business day. And you go, I got to sit down and write this thing now. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and and so I've always said that writing a book is much more daunting than saying, Hey, I wrote this book. You should read it. That's the fun part. Uh, you're, you'll, excellent, you'll be excellent book, by the way. Oh, thank you, uh, sir. It's one of those books that I thought was pretty, very like fair and well balanced as far as like the the different ideas about the nephilim and all that. You know, we we did talk about that like uh, one of our earlier shows. You know what was funny about that was uh, I remember seeing some of the reviews, and uh, they they always say never read reviews of your own books. But I you know you read them because you want to see what people are saying. And there was yeah. one guy, and these two are right after one another over on Amazon, and somebody had written. What a stupid book. I gave it one star, you know, no research, and obviously you're there just preaching Jesus and God, and you didn't say anything about aliens. And I give it one star. Don't even pick it up. And then the very next one says, I can't believe I even read this book. I give it one star. It was so poorly researched. Why, you didn't, all you did was mention aliens, aliens, aliens. You never talked about God once. And it was the exact opposite. You know, you know, some of those people are just trolls. Yeah. <laughs> so you're like, you know, either you you guys should get together, you know, maybe you can lick the platter clean, you know. <laughs> well, once you get the troll, once you get the trolls after you, that's when you know you made it, Scotty. Well, that that's happened too. Uh, so I I guess maybe that's some gauge of uh, success, you know. I don't know. It would be nice to say, hey, I can buy a new car. Um, you know, it's not that kind of success. But if success is, is gauged by the trolls that hit you up, man, we've had our criticisms. I've had my criticisms. And you go and, you know, I'm, I've been labeled uh, in the last year, I've been labeled everything from a neo-Nazi occultist, Satan-worshipping gay homophobe <laughs> to, and, 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 literally. And I was like, 
really, you can be gay and be homophobic. Right. Uh, <laughs> that way. Um, to uh, you, know, you and John Warder gay. And, you know, this was an almost official types of websites for some of these, not just trolling, anonymous troll people. And, you know, I'm an anti-Semite. I thought you'd like to know that. I, I, I told the guy who said that. I said, well, you know, my Jewish family would love to hear about that. Um, <laughs> I'm not Jewish by heritage. My my mom's stepdad was a, a Jewish a Jewish man. And we, we were the my little family, my mom, my brother, my sister, and me. We were the five goy in an ocean of Judaism <laughs> when I was growing up. There and, you go. You know, that's you what, also have uh, you also have uh, Jim Harold uh, going to be there as well. Yeah. I'm looking right at his picture here, and I was going to mention him, and we I rabbit trailed you. Uh, I believe he's like being like he's like a master of ceremonies, or like yeah, you know, he he is going to be. Well, Micah and I always uh, always MC the event itself. We've done that yeah. since day one. But uh, Jim is the uh, the MC for and the host for all of the panel discussions, and uh, so he's coming in and, and ring leading all of that. Which puts him on stage several times throughout the show. And also, is there like a cocktail after hours event as well? Yes, there is. We have. Um, well, every year we've traditionally done a banquet, and we like to do the banquet, and it's it's an extra ticket to get in there because it's a little more expensive. That's the thing that really costs us right out of our pocket directly is the dinners, and so we have to charge a goodly amount for that. But this, we've always done panel discussions. During the dinner, right after dinner, we have the whole cast up there uh, and doing panel discussion. This year, we're going to skip that and not do the panel discussion in the dinner, but we're going to have entertainment. We're starting with a a cocktail hour, and and John Ward wanted to do, Scotty, I think we should have a masquerade ball. And I'm like, well, John, nobody wants to dress up in a masquerade ball, you know? (laughs) um, We kind of fought with, well, why not? I think that's a grand idea. I said, you're so European. Uh, (laughs) But so so British, I, and there's there's only really a handful of people that attend the Paradigm Symposium that are the kind of people that would say, "Oh, I've brought my tux along." What is he going to bring his umbrella? He, he yeah, that's part of his costume. So, but mask ball, we're going to do the masks. You know, you can you can have a little cutout cardboard mask on a stick if you want. Uh, you don't even have to have a mask if you really don't want one. But the idea is to have a little fun with it during the cocktail hour for an hour prior to the dinner. And we're going to have the dinner itself, and we're going to have a, a good friend of mine. He's an entertainer. It's it's very off from everything else we do at the Paradigm Symposium. Um, he's very bawdy. It's, uh, I would say it's it's a very thick R-rated uh, program, so we've tried to let people know that ahead of time here. And uh, he's uh, he does a character called Oliver, Oliver Greenleaf Holmes. And uh, the place I met him, Gordy is his name, I met him out at the Minnesota Renaissance Festival. I used to do, for twenty, almost 20 years, I did characters out at the Minnesota Renaissance Festival. And uh, he was a character out there, and he started this body poetry he does. And so, um, um, just, just to give you one quick flavor, it's like one of his titles is, I Built My Love a Menstrual Hut. And then there's a poem about it. So uh, it gives you an idea, uh, very body R-rated. And I thought it would be a lot of fun to have him as an entertainer during the banquet, just for a whole different taste. And, of course, every night of the Paradigm Symposium, when everything's said and done and dinners are over, everybody meets in the lobby at the hotel, and that's when the after-hours stuff starts. We call it the after effects. And it's last year we had so many musicians there. 
uh, doing their 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 stuff. Jim Harold, as a matter of fact, we've never heard him sing. He sang last year and it was fabulous. Uh, we've got uh, several people that are bringing instruments this year, and that builds and grows every year, and everybody hangs out. There's something I always ask of all of my speakers when they come to speak at the, the Paradigm. I say, I in your contract, I'm going to say, I need you. If you wouldn't do it naturally by yourself, you need yeah. to mingle. We're going to have these after-hours things. I want everybody available to be done. And, you know, everybody comes anyway. And we want That's to really awesome, Scotty, because some of these people that are maybe more well-known or – you know, it brings them down to earth and it makes it more human. Very yeah. well-known people that came uh, over the years. And, I mean, the, these are your some of your TV personalities. Um, they gave their lecture, and yet I didn't see them. They, they stayed in the room and ordered uh, um, uh, room service the rest of the weekend. Uh, a yeah. good example is Eric Von Daniken of just the opposite of that. I thought, this guy, icon, all of this. I remember he came, and he said, I'm yours for the weekend. And uh, um, after he was done speaking and people were done, he would go get a little cocktail. He'd go sit out on the bench out where everybody went outside to smoke, and he smokes. And so he'd go out there, light up a cigarette, and I saw a young couple come up to him and say, oh, very sheepishly, uh, hello, Mr. Rondanikin, you know, we'd like to meet you and just say hi. And he goes, here, you come sit right next to me, we talk. And they were there for a half an hour talking to him. And people, that's the way he was. He was yeah. there to spend time with the people, which was very cool. Did you have any of the people that stayed in their hotel rooms request like all green M and M's or something? I I didn't get that one. We we kind of. <laughs> um, I'll tell you privately who that was, but it was uh, somebody just they did just vacated for the whole weekend. Was uh-huh. like, Come on, that was now that was three years ago. I'm I'm never right. ever nay say anybody bad say anybody on the radio, but uh, um, I'll tell you about that in private sometime. It, and also being a conference, uh, you'll also have vendor. Um, Yes, we do. Vendors out, out in the, uh, I guess, the lobby. Area. Yep. We'll have vendors. We'll have some of our sponsors that will be venue, vendors. Uh, and if all goes well, some of our sponsors have absolutely nothing to do with what we're speaking about, but they're there as our sponsors. And yeah. so, and then we got stuff that people is, people are selling, you know, from jewelry to books to, you know, you name it. The same, uh, fairly typical for this type of show. But uh, Magus Books is one of our big sponsors, and they – are going to be the exclusive bookseller this year. And uh, they're a local shop in Minneapolis. They've been in what's called in Minneapolis Dinky Town. And uh, Dinky Town is, is just the, it's the Minnesota, Uni- University of Minnesota campus and the, the town within the city that grew up around it. And uh, it's, it's the, all the shops and all the restaurants and all that stuff that the college kids, you know, uh, go 10 blocks by 10 blocks, you know, something like that. And uh, so it's very cool. And it's like a little town within the big city. And uh, so uh, that's where they are. But they're an international company. And they're so they're coming. They're one of our big sponsors. And uh, you can buy everybody's books that's speaking there. You can buy, uh, you know, you, the speakers themselves will have tables, will have autograph times and things like that. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, Scotty, the time that we have left, to just you know, what's the website people can get tickets? Uh, is there like a various pricing uh, levels? Um, and also, you know, where people can get your books. Oh, sure. Well, uh, for the Paradigm Symposium, we've had different levels every year, and we've just we've pared it down to just one ticket. There's one ticket for everybody. Um, and that ticket, uh, it's $280, but that gets you in for the whole weekend. That gets you into all the lectures, all the, all the debates, 
all the panel discussions, everything after hours, it's all on that ticket. The only thing that ticket does not include is the dinner. And the gotcha. dinner is extra because the hotel charges us extra. And, I, and this is probably a really good time to say that these events, the reason we charge for them, we'd give them away for free if we could. But these things cost us every year about eighty dollars to $90,000 to put on. Wow. So when you start doing the math, you, you see how quickly that adds up. So we have to charge for it. Uh, we've tried to keep – we have not raised the rate of the tickets uh, at all. The only way it's gone up this year at all is the first year, our biggest ticket, we called it the highest level, got you into everything, plus the meal was $350, I think it was. And now we're 280 and then you pay 110 if you want to get into the banquet. And the banquet sure. that covers the entertainment, the banquet, and everything. Now you can find all of this information out at paradigmsymposium.com. And uh, just go over there, take a look. You can click on the links, get your tickets. And uh, we had some specials up. I'm not sure if we're going to have any specials between now and the time of the show. Uh, but we will have day passes coming up, uh, very short order, in the next couple of weeks. We'll have the itinerary up, which is not up yet. When the itinerary goes up with the exact schedule of the show, uh, which we're now just a little less than three months out, uh, well, that itinerary will go up and there will be day passes attached to each day of the itinerary. So you can, uh, if you need to get them individually. All right. Excellent. Well, thank you, Scotty, for, for being on. And also where people can get your books as well. Uh, my books, <clears throat> as my uh, publisher would like to say, New Page has done all of my books so far. New Page books. And, uh, they like to say they're available everywhere books are sold. But, of course, go over to my website. It's probably the best place you can find them all put together in one place. Go to scottallenroberts.com. And Allen, just because there's 100 million different ways to spell it, is A-L-A-N. So scottallenroberts.com. And scroll down to the bottom of the page. Any page on my site. Well, let's see. I think I, I've actually even changed that that site around a bit. I hate Hate to hate to do that now and 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 change that mid sentence, but uh, I've changed my website around so there's a place that just says books. You'll see it, and absolutely graphic books. It's got my books. It's got a sword laying across one of the books, and so you can just click on that. That'll take you to all my books. Yeah, highly re- highly recommend them both the Nephilim and the Reptilians. I've not read the Exodus book yet, but I'm sure it's uh, good. It's a good book. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, my, it's got uh, my rollicking adventures of Tam O'Hare. Is on. Yeah, it's a book I wrote and illustrated several years ago, and that's you know there was a there was a show that I used to listen to called World of the Unexplained. I'll give the guys a plug. Uh, they used to play an advertisement for that book. Oh, really? On on their show? Yeah, well, that's cool. Yeah. All right, Scotty. Well, thanks for coming on, and uh, stay on the line for us, and uh, we'll sure. be back on on Conspiracy Normal. Sounds good, Adam. Thanks. All right. Welcome back to Conspiranormal. It's your host, Adam Sane, and with me, the ever-vescent Mr. Luke Reed. Yes. And uh, the, this ever-so-vivacious and voluptuous. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true, too, I think. Uh, big thanks to uh, Scotty Roberts for taking a little time out today, and we talk about the Paradise Symposium with him for about uh, 20, 30 minutes, um, which, you, which is what you all just heard on the show. And... Our picture that we have on our website, our logo, so to speak, is Luke's eye looking through a hole, and it kind of looks like the eye in the pyramid. Well, what that actually is, 
is a picture of Luke looking through an astronomical alignment hole on the Georgia Guidestones. We went there. Which I like to call a portus. Yeah. We went there in 2012, took some pictures, and I told Luke, you got to look through this hole, man. It's a perfect shot for a conspiranormal. And it's been that way ever since. And uh, now very nicely tweaked, actually, by uh, Scotty Roberts as well. But we have someone on the line who is a good friend on the show. He was the very first guest on the show, and I believe this, I, I'm not quite sure, but I think this is maybe the fifth time or something. Let me fix that. And somebody's, uh, somebody's beeping is going off here. Uh, and that is uh, Dr. Future. And we're going to talk about a documentary that uh, Dr. Future worked on, did the research on, called Dark Clouds Over Elberton. And it is the story of the Georgia Guidestones. And more specifically, it is kind of a reveal-tell-all of who actually, well, not physically built the Georgia Guidestones, because we knew pretty much who built them physically, but who commissioned them, and who the mysterious R.C. Christian was. And we're going to get into that here in just a second. But, uh, Dr. Future, welcome back to Conspiranormal. It's great to be back with you all. Am I coming through loud and clear? Yes, sir. You are. You are. Great, great. Yep. You're exactly right. That picture with that mysterious, I don't know if that's Horace looking through that slot mm-hmm. on your website a lot. but uh, Well, Luke would like to think that's Adonis looking through there. Adonis? But, uh, okay. Uh, I'd like to think I could be any kind of god. That'd be awesome. Uh, <laughs> now, we all, we all laugh at this, but what is occurring on this show is for the first time in history, uh, an actual unveiling of the what we understand to be the identity of R.C. Christian, the designer and conceiver of the Georgia Gadstones. Your show is solving a world mystery uh, at this time. I say tonight, your your listeners may be listening to this on the following day, yes. but this is not just another documentary talking about a bunch of crazy theories and rehashing information. Uh, it appears that a mystery has now been solved with hard evidence and this show uh, today is going to be the first time ever it's been disclosed uh, to any more than two or three people. Yes, this is a conspiranormal first. It's pretty. I'm, I'm stoked. I yeah. really am. Yeah, it's awesome. The Georgia Guy Shows is something that, that I've known about for a long time. I've listened to a show that was uh, guys did in Athens, Georgia, called Out There, and this is like um, I'm going to say like 2006, 2007, when I was kind of just getting into li- listening to podcasts. And that was the first time I'd ever heard about it. And, of course, you know, Athens is just really 30 miles down the road from Elberton, Georgia, where the Guidestones are. And I was just immediately intrigued by it. So I took a trip down there in, I want to say, 2008, I believe. It was either two, I think it was 2008. I went down there with a friend just to check it out. And... It's pretty cool, pretty uh, pretty funny, pretty interesting, kind of odd roadside attraction. And went down there, the second time we went was in mm-hmm. 2012. 2012, that's where we took the picture. And then just a couple of months ago, back in April, I went down there, because we were in Athens for uh, to see a show, and went to the, see the Georgia Guide Center, because another friend of mine had not seen it. And actually, was <laughs> was very funny, because we ran into... Uh, the Chris Chris Pinto, who directed the movie and edited the movie, uh, the documentary, he I ran into him down there, 
it was just like the strangest coincidence. I look over and I see this guy, one guy with a camera, kind of just like dressed normally with a cap on it. And then another guy with like a, a trench coat and this kind of like weird, I don't know, 1930s, 40s looking hat on. Oh, is like it a, a city cap? Yeah, like a city cap kind of hat. And I'm like, what's going on here? Is this like some kind of weird men in black thing? And I look over. And I'm like, wait a minute, I think that's Chris Pinto because, you know, we, we know him. He's, he's here where we are in Nashville. And and then I see the other guy with him is also someone we go to church with, Dr. Future. And I just thought that was extraordinarily cool. What a coincidence. And they were actually filming some scenes that are actually in that documentary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, for any of your listeners who also are Futurians that listen to the Future Quake show, that I produced for seven right. years with Tom Bionic. The the most distressing thing they're going to find out when they watch this is that this mysterious, notorious character that everyone has feared uh, is R.C. Christian plotting the demise of the world was actually our own radio announcer on Future Quake. Yes. Mer- Merv. <laughs> they will see Merv, the announcer on Future Quake, actually portraying R.C. Christian. So I have tried to warn him that he's going to be hounded when he's out in public. <laughs> Now that this is being released, that right. uh, he's going to be public enemy number one. Uh, yeah, he, uh, um, Chris Pinto, as you know, who who actually is the the producer of it. I'm an assistant uh, producer. Um, he is a real master at producing these kind of documentaries or or documentaries in general. This is a little bit of a different animal, a subject like this for him. And what happened was what started to be just sort of like a more of a comprehensive let's interview everybody who's still living that was involved kind of thing all of a sudden through some amazing turn of events uh sort of a da vinci code kind of set of circumstances came about where we suddenly became privy to smoking gun evidence real time live on camera that um changed everything and totally changed the direction of what was going on he had asked me Way back in 2005, at the beginning of 2005, if I would like to assist and uh, go down to Elberton and interview the people and things like this. And now here it is, no, not 2005, 2010, excuse me, beginning of 2010. And so here we are five and a half years later, and finally uh, it's being released uh, after all this time. And having all of these secrets and sitting on top of them for this long was extremely hard to do. But uh, now it's going to be revealed to the world what we discovered. Um, But uh, Mr. Pinto, again, he's won awards in New York and L.A., and and he does stuff that's as or better than what you see on production television. And it comes across in this documentary. It's a two-hour documentary. I consider it the definitive work on the Georgia Gadstones, not only because it's comprehensive and all the players who are involved, there's... There's one or two people that are deceased. The rest of them, uh, some of them have even been deceased since we got their interviews. But the big key is the unveiling, this amazing surprise of what apparently is the identity of R.C. Christian, one of his henchmen in the uh, documentary itself. Well, let's let's lay some groundwork here uh, so people know what we're talking about. Because not everyone in our audience is going to know what the Georgia Guidestones is. I'm sure there's a lot of people that do. But... Mm-hmm. I want to talk about the story behind the Georgia Guidestones and, you know, what they're supposed to be, what they're supposed to represent, and, you know, kind of like the 
the commandments that are written on this on these stones and what they're supposed to say. Okay. Well, um, do you want me to talk about like how it sort of came about? Yeah. Yeah. How it came about and just like what, uh, you, you know, what the purpose that it may serve. Yeah. Well, um, and th- by the way, this is, this is go- talked about in great details on, um, the, uh, the documentary itself and it's traumatized in a very professional way. So you can actually, you can see all of this play out comprehensively it with the original people involved. But what happened was there's a little sleepy little town on the Bible Belt uh, outside of Atlanta. I don't know. Was it an hour, hour and a half? Uh, it's real close to the South Carolina border, uh, directly due east of Atlanta, called Elberton. And it's known as the granite capital of the world. And they have huge quarries where they dig out granite. And they have specialists in doing that and finishing it. They make monuments, uh, tombstones, anything. It's a long-lasting structure. And one day uh, at the Elberton Granite uh, Company, uh, there was a gentleman that walked in, very distinguished-looking man, who said he wanted a monument made. And they thought that he was just wanting like a, a you know, a discounted tombstone. Because right. people go there, they try to buy them there instead of going through a retail outlet. And he says, well, you know, we don't sell to the public. He says, well, you don't understand what I'm trying to do. And he explained that it was a 20-foot-tall granite structure. And they thought he was joking because those kind of things just aren't done. And he thought he was crazy, uh, but he sort of played along because the guy seemed sort of distinguished and was coming across very serious. And so he sent him to the banker in town, Wyatt Martin, uh, I believe it was the Granite City Bank, uh, to see about, you know, was it legit? Was it, did he really have the money to put this up? And in the process, uh, he, he explained he wanted to leave something for a legacy. He had a small group of people for, um, future generations, uh, that were guidelines for living in the future for humanity. And, um, the banker, uh, as part of the process of setting up an account for money, he says, look, I have a responsibility. I have to know your true identity uh, to be able to set this up, to even do a project like this. And he wasn't even right. actually sure, too. But but the gentleman says, look, I'm operating under a pseudonym by, of the name R.C. Christian um, because we represent a group of Christians. And um, I don't want to reveal my identity, but he, the banker insisted on it. And so he made Mr. Martin sort of swear that he wouldn't uh, divulge the name to other people. Uh, and then, so he gave him his name and, and to this day, uh, up to now, that was the only person who knew the name of, uh, who the real RC Christian was. And he started sending the money. And I guess this was a project that eventually from the research we came, uh, exceeded, uh, a hundred grand. It was somewhere in the six figures when when the smoke cleared, but, um, expensive. It's, it's known today as America Stonehenge. It was designed in 1979. Uh, people from the United Nations were involved in translating. Uh, it's Some people call it the Ten Commandments of the New World Order. Uh, there are ten statements or guidelines for how humanity is supposed to live in the future. And it talks about having world courts to settle disputes and a common language. The thing that's most distressing to most people when it talks about having a population of 500 million uh, in harmony with nature. Luke's giving a, th- a thumbs up, by the way. Oh, 
Uh, thumbs up to what? The 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 reduction. Five hundred million. <laughs> really? Reduction of the world population. That, no, 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 no. I, no, that's way too small. That is way too small. Okay. He doesn't want to wait in traffic, Doctor Future. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. The, I, I tell you, the bummers if you don't make the cut. Right. That, then the appeal of the idea goes down a lot. But well, it's a good thing I'm a genius. Well, that is true. <laughs> yeah. Good uh, thing, Luke. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I know that's the consensus of the audience, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> but the, uh, but anyway, uh, they they have these these, these big stone columns. Uh, they look like obelisks or, or uh, monoliths that are rectangular, and they're they they stand vertically uh, in a little arrangement, sort of a little reminiscent of Stonehenge. And in fact, that was his intention based upon his letters. Um, that have these Ten Commandments written in all of the major world languages on the, on all the faces. Uh, and then they have these ancient languages like in Babylonian and Sanskrit and Hebrew. Um, they, they have a, um, a little writing on the top, on the little gnomon stone on top, it says about it being dedicated to the Age of Reason. And uh, there's a little capstone down on the ground that, that appears to be for a time capsule. Uh, that uh, also was there a feature on the grounds. But anyway, uh, the the project was done without the guy ever revealing his identity to the granite workers or anybody else. Uh, and they took this massive undertaking, and they encouraged him to build it locally because of the transportation issues involved. And eventually it was constructed and erected on the site and dedicated on the, I guess it would be the Vernal Equinox. Something like March twenty first, nineteen eighty. Right, spring equinox. And seen, and it seems like since then it's just captured the imagination of the public. There are frequent documentaries on normal places like the History Channel or National Geographic and places, and everybody marvels at it. They speculate who built it, but nobody could ever crack the case of of who actually was behind it. Until now. Until now. Uh, just you kind of recap the. The stones, like the languages on them, on the top of the stone, I believe it translates to something like, let these be a guide to a new age of reason. Mm-hmm. And that is in ancient languages. I think you have right. Greek, hieroglyphics, cuneiform, right. Sanskrit maybe, I think is the other one. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you have the English side, which is, which is obviously what everybody's going to focus on. Right. Like you've got Spanish You've got uh, Chinese, uh, Cyrillic, Swahili, yeah. uh, and a couple of other languages. I can't. I think one's Arabic, maybe, right, and right. Hebrew is another one. Right. So there's several different languages that it's translated to. And it's like a Rosetta Stone in that regard. Right. Hmm. Yeah. It's, it's kind of set up that way. The, the cuneiform on the capstone uh, says something different, though. Right. From the. From but I the think they're of... all supposed to say the same thing. So something like let this these be the, a god. The capstone says reasons. something different. Yeah, yeah. It's a the the cat like on the top. Mm-hmm. It says let these be a god to an age of reason. Right. In all right. four of those ancient that's languages, right. on all four sides of that one gotcha. stone. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. The the additional feature are the the astronomical or astrological uh, um, guides, and depending on your viewpoint. Uh, where actually it's oriented on a pure north-south-east-west direction. Yeah. Uh, experts were able to align it. There are holes drilled where you can align up the North Star at all times. You can mark the different uh, equinoxes and solstices through holes that are drilled in them. 
to to line up and and you know the people speculated this allow you to have a a calendar and uh you know other kind of features that you can use just based upon this again a little akin to Stonehenge and and other monolithic sacred sites in that regard don't, I mean don't don't you think Portis is a good name for that I mean doesn't it fit <laughs> Can, can I call the MLA and like have them put that in sure. the dictionary? Because <laughs> there's no name for it. Well, just like porthole or something like that. Would it be like or but astronomical? Port, but portus sounds sweet. Though. Portus, <laughs> like P O R T I C E. That's perfect. Like, you know, I don't know if you may mention this, but it, it's very reminiscent of the holes that are in the Great Pyramid. Yeah, because mm-hmm. you can see the you see the North Star, and then it'll eventually over time line up with Drago or something like that. So. Um, so yeah, obviously that has increased the mystery dr- dramatically, uh, with the device or with the apparatus. And, uh, it has just been a subject of mystery and speculation ever since it's been erected. And that's been what, 35 years. Now, wasn't there, um, they, uh, obviously they went to Elberton because of the granite that was in the ground and that, you know, it was built, it was easy to, um, get that granite from there but i think they wanted to actually build it somewhere a little further south and yeah that there, would have ended up being in the woods or some or a national park or something yeah it was down in uh around macon yeah uh around in the macon area and even then people have speculated on the real reasons it was supposed to go there supposedly it was a, a better straight shot at the sun and some other uh devices but for various reasons it was not it didn't work out, and there have been some speculations on why it didn't work out. Um, one of the things the people in Elberton say was that they convinced R.C. Christian because of cost, that the transportation would have been very prohibitive to not put it Elberton. Plus, Elberton is like one of the highest spots, as I understand it, in Georgia. And so it actually, the view was really, really good that where they could put this uh, for a lengthy view. So they were able to convince him to place it there. You know, I think the Cherokees called the area the 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 navel of the world or something like that. You know, um, whether that had anything to do with R.C. Christian or not, I can't say. There's been some speculation on uh, the reason for building it, and one of the speculation is, is that, of course, it's 1980, and it's kind of uh, at this point in the Cold War. There's a lot of tensions that could the people felt that could erupt into like a nuclear conflict at any point. Uh, is there anything to the possibility that uh, these could have been there as like a marker in case there was a nuclear war that maybe could like re-jumpstart civilization or maybe that was a, a reasoning for building them? You know, um, I need to recheck the book that was written by Robert Christian called Common Sense Renewed. But I, but I believe the the intention was to actually prevent it from occurring yeah. rather than trying to reestablish it. Not not that some of the things that were featured on there, you know, if it's sort of like a Planet of the Apes kind of thing, you know, where they discover it and <laughs> rebuild society, it's possible. Uh, right. But I think a lot of it was really intended to be more preventative. Okay. Because when, when I first went out there, you know, my friend actually brought that up, the, the guy that I was with, and he said, you know, that this would be a perfect spot because, like, it's remote, and if... Uh, you know, there was a nuclear attack or something. People could could come there, and it's like that's something he thought of right away. So yeah. a lot of people have had that speculation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think what he was hoping was that he could prevent, uh, you know, prevent this from happening. 
Okay. I have some quotes I, I jotted down from his book, and it may clarify some of those things when you want to talk about that. We can okay. review that. Yeah. Well, let's talk about a little bit about some of the other theories that are out there about why this thing was built or, or even the theories on who might have built them. Well, you know, uh, one name that came up frequently was Ted Turner. Yeah. Because Ted Turner, one, from Atlanta, not far away. And two, he's been very active with the United Nations. And three, he has talked about overpopulation and he's made some pretty bold statements about how terrible it is and how it needs to be you know, addressed and this kind of thing. And so he he was one who was a candidate. Um, someone else I heard said something like uh, they thought uh, L. Ron Hubbard was behind it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there's, there's just been a host of different people involved. But uh, our, our findings are more smoking gun findings, and it doesn't involve anybody that's a celebrity like that. Right, right. Which actually, to me, is more intriguing in many ways. So, yeah, exactly. That it's not someone, or it's not like the the, the New World Order or something like that. You know, the, right. the nefarious uh, Illuminati or something. Right. It's not that the person wasn't prominent right. or significant. It's just that they weren't a media celebrity, which uh, deepens the mystery. Okay. So, let me ask you about this interaction that took place with the banker, Wyatt Martin, who at the time of the interview was alive. And I'm not sure if he's still alive now, but uh, you had an interaction with him. You and Chris Pinto went, I guess, to his house, to his home and you spoke to him. And this is all in the documentary. Right. And what was that interaction like with him? What did he reveal or tell you that was different from anything that anybody else had said before? And also, what did he have in his shed? Okay. Well, uh, Wyatt Martin, I guess you could argue him as really being the central figure in this story, aside from R.C. Christian himself. And to my knowledge, it's the first time any kind of extended lengthy interview was done. Uh, and, and he's a you know very old man at this time, and he, he didn't necessarily want to fool with just anybody. And it was... Uh, you know, it was a good thing that he felt comfortable enough with us to have an extended conversation. And uh, he he's told from the horse's mouth uh, the nature of his experience with Mr. Christian and the fact the guy said that he was a Christian. He didn't know, you know, much more about his background. He knew his profession. Uh, he knew, uh, you know, uh, other the, the, that kind of general thing about him, but he didn't know much about anybody else with him. He didn't press him on his motives. Um, according to Mr. Martin, his testimony, but you know, um, he, he reflected sort of a general thought that we ran into with the other citizens in Elberton that, you know, they thought the stuff on the guidestones was sort of funny, but it wasn't disturbing enough that it bothered them about proceeding with the project. Right. But the thing they did see, uh, particularly from Mr. Martin on down, and I think he was the I believe he was the head of the um, Chamber of Commerce at the time, was that it could be a great tourist attraction. Right, right. And they liked the mystery that was involved with it, and they thought that would really bring people in. And so, um, you know, he, he, he told us, a, you know, a few things about the man was a very dignified gentleman. Uh, um, some of the other people we interviewed from the Granite Society were able to fill in some other holes about the guy. They said they detected his accent was from the upper 
uh, upper Midwest, just from what they would sound like, that, that he had a real, uh, R.C. Christian had a real knowledge of uh, plants and animals and botany and that kind of thing, and knew all the, all the Latin names for all of them when they would talk, you know, and seemed like really into ecology hmm. and conservation. Interesting. And, uh, but uh, um, he kept a little limited contact with uh, Mr. Christian after the project was done, and they would send letters occasionally. I think maybe once or twice he came back sort of incognito back to Elberton and um, actually had dinner with one of the men without telling me his name, one of the other men for the Granite Association uh, through, through Wyatt Martin's arrangement. But um, but they kept on receiving letters back and forth uh, until sometime shortly before the R.C. Christian passed away. And I believe he'd even gotten a, a contact from his son, R.C. Christian's son, uh, notifying that his father had passed away. Okay. So um, some of the exact times I go, I'd have to go back and check my notes on it. But, but anyway, the gist of it, and even uh, Mr. Martin talked about his own you know, Christian background and testimony, and and he he could sort of he didn't have issues reconciling his very strong Christian beliefs with some of the things that were written on the guidestones. Uh, right. He he took the man at face value that he thought he was a good good Christian man of good intentions, and didn't really think too long and hard about the content, and proceeded with the project. And they were just all excited that this would really put Elverton on the map. Didn't think too long and hard about that first, the first uh, rule there on the yeah, top. It yeah, it did put him on the map. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just, mission accomplished. Yeah, you'd have to watch a documentary to see how he handles it. But it's to me, th- these are some of the side things that are very intriguing about watching these interviews. Is that you see in these people? Uh, I won't call it cognitive dissonance, but they they, they can in one side. See, you know, they didn't admit that witches went up there and did sacrifices and a bunch of people in the occult doing stuff. Yeah. And they just sort of shrugged their shoulders, and I think they just think, well, hey, that's good for, you know, PR. Um, right. But yet they were involved, <laughs> active church-going people themselves doing things. And I think that's a little bit of a reflection of a lot of our society, uh, particularly from the Bible Belt where I come from. There's a lot of that coexistence that goes on that's unrecognized. You yeah. know, you think about the clan and everything. And how people could do that kind of stuff. You know, they go lynch somebody and then be in church the next morning, singing hymns. Now, that's an extreme case. But I'm just saying it's something that's a, you know, it's a common thing that we find in our society. Um, About, you know, it did put them on the map. Yeah, oh, yeah. It brings a lot of people out there. Mission accomplished. And just all of the attention on the... uh, you know, documentaries on TV and things like that. And I mean, there's still people I come across have never heard of it, but it's more and more famous because of the TV uh, presence. And uh, when 2010, when we started this, uh, CNN had done just just done a big story because it was the 30th anniversary of it, and we were we were there on I think the date of the 30th anniversary. We were on the grounds okay. uh, when we were filming there, uh, right around that time. But um, uh, it's just captured the public's consciousness. So anyway, we were able to document all of that, uh, a few little tidbits here and there that you'll see in the documentary uh, that maybe hadn't been covered by others because it was a long, extended interview where we scratched his brain about things. But but the big thing, of course, is what you alluded to is, uh, first, his admission that the, the mysterious uh, typewriter case or computer case yeah. full of R.C. Christian documents was in his possession. 
It was like a case from like an old IBM, like a 1984 IBM computer or something right. like that. It's huge. Right. Uh, and it was mentioned. It was mentioned in a Wired article, and uh, he refused to let him see it. And he said he had planned to burn the contents, if I remember correctly. Um, and that was the end of it. And Wired magazine. This was also somewhere around 2009, 2010. Basically, just said, "Well, I guess there, there goes the story," and that's the end of it. But through an amazing turn of events, and this is what really changed the dynamic in what we were doing, what we thought would be a fairly straightforward documentary, um, suddenly we were made privy to this information that was either thought to be destroyed or otherwise unavailable. Right. And how did you see that information? Well, uh, the, 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 the case came up. And we were talking about it, and I don't want to spoil it for the viewers too much because I have to say one thing why, why I really encourage people to go get the documentary and watch it, not, not only because it helps recoup the cost for Mr. Pinto and for the work and time we spent, which are years of work and research in doing this to try to solve this mystery, um, but I, it's hard for me to describe the tension and the drama because this all unfolds on camera live. Yeah. Yeah. And it it very much is like a Da Vinci Code, but in a non phony way. It's it's not contrived. It was not scripted. Um, we had opportunities on camera that suddenly revealed themselves to us, and you will see it. And I I think you can vouch for that. You're the only other living person who's seen the documentary. <laughs> uh, this week it should be uh, the uh, back from the duplicators and shipped out the door uh, early th- uh, this week or about the time you upload this interview. Yep. It's but, off the presses. Yep. But you're, you're the only person that's seen it and the evidence. And, and what was your uh, perspective on it, Adam? Did you think it had a lot of tension and drama? Yeah, I mean, the part where it, what is revealed is revealed it was, very, uh, was very tense, very interesting. Well, because... Um, because and, you, and, but very yeah. simple at the same time, yeah. and just it wasn't it wasn't like a it wasn't like a hard thing. It's just yeah. that something was seen, and and that was it. You know. Well, there wasn't anything orchestrated. In other words, right. it wasn't like uh, tr- trickery with, uh, um, you know, it, it wasn't pre-scripted. It, there's so much stuff on TV now. The, these things on the History Channel and other ones. Where they pretend to have tension, they pretend to have setbacks, and, and you can see through all this stuff, a discerning person, that they're just yeah. trying to keep people to the next commercial. And this is all stuff that's just happening real time out of the camera. And um, initially, he sort of refused to let us see the case. And you'll, you, you hear the conversation uh, us, because I was the one actually doing the interviewing, and and Chris was behind the camera, and but we both started engaging with with Mr. Martin, and uh, we'd built up a good rapport with him, and uh, originally he just wanted, and then it became that well, it's all behind a bunch of a bunch of stuff, you know, he had a bunch of stuff in his shed and it was back in the back, could get to it, and so on camera, Chris volunteered to have me go through and dig through the stuff to bring it out so we could see the case. And so you see us, just the camera, we're all walking out there uh, right after he finally agreed to let us see it. And uh, we, we traipse out to the to the thing, and he very carefully and laboriously unlocks it and, you know, continues our discussion. And um, I start digging back in the far back of this shed and find this computer case 
that uh, some people thought had already been destroyed. Uh, and sure enough, was able to dig it out and haul this big heavy thing out to the camera front. And um, we talked about it and looked at it and didn't know if that was going to be the end of things. And uh, it may have been Chris that asked if we could actually see the inside of it. Uh, and so, to our surprise, he agreed. And we opened it up and, um, you know, with with Chris filming inside there, you know, with his permission, we're filming and looking around. And he actually picked up a letter from R.C. Christian. Right. And there, there, are not, there are these actual letters from R.C. Christian because he was the he was the middleman that was uh, sort of helping oversee the project and get it done there in Elberton. And he starts reading from them, and he lets this film as a you know the the name on the bottom of it, the Art Robert Christian or R. C. Christian, and he mentions some things about. And I I was sort of making mental notes, and later we we found a lot of it on the camera where he was mentioning dates and ages of the man, and all of these clues just started popping out. And um, as we asked him if we could film down further in it, and there was a few other pieces. There was a package. That was going to uh, um, going to the Smithsonian uh, on behalf of R.C. Christian on behalf of another gentleman, and there was this other gentleman's name in there we didn't know, and so um, sort of jotted down that name, and um, in, in the meantime we're looking around in on the camera, and I, I see an address on. Um, one of the envelopes and it you know i remembered the address and it turned out later far when we got into editing that it was in the camera too that uh when he had opened it up and moved it around and shown stuff there it was um you had to sort of turn around a little bit but you could actually see uh an address uh in there and uh, a return address on the envelope right exactly yeah straight from iowa of all places and uh, so took that and a few little tidbits of information. There wasn't a whole lot. It's a relatively brief interlude. Um, but, uh, again, I, I recollected a lot of what I saw. Uh, later we confirmed it in the camera, uh, far later. But anyway, that bega- began me to do considerable research. And through research and doing basically what you see on TV, you know, like PI kind of stuff was actually able to identify the man who lived at that address, and he started matching all of the data we had, including the age of the person in the letter, um, you know, for the date of the letter itself, all of the description of him, his activities all matched exactly, his pursuits of conservation and pretty extreme views. And so everything just sort of fell into place. And uh, that led into further revelations. Before we get into that, though, I want to ask a question about Wyatt Martin. And you had mentioned that the Wired article had mentioned this box, this computer box with all these papers. And he was reluctant, or he said that he would not let anybody see it or let them see it. So why do you think that he let you and Chris see the box? Had there been a rapport maybe stricken up between you guys? or Well, you know, I can only speculate on that. And it was one of those kind of things where 
it was best, I think it was best just not to sort of pick at that too much. Yeah. And and just let him share what he shared. Um, he did not want to directly share the name of Mr. Christian. Um, but, you know, he knew that we were Christians. He knew that we were trying to do a sincere professional job. Uh, it, it appears from his comments, and these weren't so much on the, uh, on the final edited product, although he makes a few allusions to it. He, he didn't like people who had their own pet theories that were just grabbed out of the air. Because that that irked him because he knew it was nothing of the sort. And so if people came in trying to prove a certain crazy theory, that just turned him right off. Gotcha. Uh, But I think he appeared we were truly just trying to document things before everybody passed away. And um, uh, I, I, well, from what he had shared with me that he felt that, uh, you know, he he was impressed with us and that uh, we had his respect. And... Um, so why he was willing to show that to us, he did mention on camera, he had thought one time about, um, writing a book and using that material for a book, why he hadn't destroyed it. And then, but, but he was really an advanced age when we talked to him and he says, you know, I'm probably too old to do that now. So, you know, I guess he probably knew this would be the last time that there would be any kind of remote interaction or possibility like this. So. Why he let us see the material, uh, why he let certain information be available for us to see, um, you know, those are the little things that just best not to ask, I think. So you trace this information. You find out that it's a certain person. Mm-hmm. Or rather, in a way that it's actually two different people. Right. I, I, I would explain it. There's a, there's a main person that, that, as I understand it, is the R.C. Christian, and he had sort of a henchman or a, a, a gentleman who helped him directly in, in bringing this about. Okay. And you also find out that there is a book that is written about six years after the Georgia Guidestones is, is built, and that lays down a lot of the philosophy, and you actually, well, I guess that that was never in any doubt that that was actually R.C. Christian's book. Yeah, and, well, nobody seemed to doubt it. Um, it was signed by Robert Christian. It was in the Elberton Bookstore. Yeah. And um, nobody seemed to have any doubt that it wasn't, uh, you know, coming from that same source. And in the book itself, the author says, I'm the one that's the originator of the Georgia Gadstones and placed them there. And and really, it's an elaboration of the philosophy and rationale for the, the Ten Guides which people found perplexing. The irony is, except for main researchers, hardly anybody ever seemed to go look it up. Uh, you know, there were a few researchers that talked about it. Uh, I don't know if it's still available for sale at the Granite Museum in Elberton, but that's where, where we got it from. Um, but, but actually, he had sent, I think it was leather-bound copies, uh, it's called Common Sense Renewed, to all of the members of Congress, and other national and world leaders, they all got their own copy from him. He he was a very ambitious guy. This is sort of typical of you know the the vision of what he had, and so he sent this to help elaborate. He he was trying to save the world in his view, and uh, so yeah, it was an amazing impact. But it's just funny how it's been lost to history, and the amount of people who really sort of did the, the most basic research of, you know, the origins of the book. I'm amazed that 
that a lot of that wasn't pursued either because that all dovetailed completely with our other findings. What were some of the ideas that were that were placed in the book? Uh, some of the and, and it elaborates further on what is on the guidestones. Uh, some of these ideas about population control, yeah. and also this the, the the claims that he makes about being a traveler, that going to different places and 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 seeing kind of like runaway population and how it kind of affected him. Well, do, do you have a little time for me? Because I've got a good number of intriguing quotes. But if I if it's too much, I need you to Absolutely. tell me. Absolutely, go but ahead. I, but go I'll ahead. I'll share some with you. Um, uh, and you just tell me when you've heard enough. Um, Absolutely. It says in the inside of the cover of the book, it says Gorbachev has brought about many liberalizing policies in the USSR. Um, about the book inside the cover. By, by the way, it was written in 1986, so six years after the Gadstones. I guess he felt like when he'd heard a few things in the press, maybe he needed to follow up and explain himself further through this book. It says, uh, it says, in 86, the author suggested modifications to the philosophy and the attitude of the U.S. and communist world and to make possible an end to the Cold War. Uh, and then there's a third edition printed in 1990 um, that really it has the same proposals in it. Um, it says the first two editions that were distributed in 86 the several thousand political officials and shapers of political opinion throughout the world, including all members of Congress. Uh, there are a hundred copies in leather held by the Georgia Gadstones Foundation. They were autographed by the author uh, as gifts for those who gave to the Monument Fund. And it says to place additional outer stones. And we actually have the drawings. That's a whole other story. We have the actual drawings from R.C. Christian of the expansion of the Georgia Guidestones display, that we're going to have additional moonstones in outer rings that were placed outside the, the current existing one. Um, and uh, it says, uh, oh, here, here's another key, uh, a, a key indication that for some reason I saw no one follow up on. It says, um, <clears throat> paper-bound copies of this book can be ordered from Stowell's Graphic Services, Lake Mills, Iowa. Or the Georgia Gadstones Foundation. So there's already an Iowa Foundation there right in front of everybody's eyes that no one's seen to pursue. Um, but uh, he says, Robert Christian's a pseudonym of an American citizen concerned about the decline of political and economic struggle of our republic. Uh, he is the author and sponsor of the Georgia Gadstones Monuments. And these essays extend the subject further. He mentions that he reached the harvest time of his own life and that these are private concepts of the cosmos and our role in it, which may offend certain of my readers because of the seeming conflict of their own cherished beliefs and traditions. Uh, he says, but don't let your judgment be overwhelmed by unreasoning faith that ignores honest evidence. And he says, um, we must unite with the entire human family in establishing a limited world government capable of settling international disputes through a system of law. And uh, he desires an age of reason to be established. That's just like Thomas Paine talked about, age of reason. Right. To be established in the lifetimes of today's children. And again, he mentions Thomas Paine and or Tom Paine, common sense. He, um, he says, even our most dogmatic beliefs may prove to be an error when viewed against the background of new understanding. Uh, he says, for more than 60 years, I've benefited from the American political system uh, and from the age that we have of this gentleman from 1920, uh, he would have been in his mid-60s at the time this was written. 
He says, uh, which was built through the labors and sufferings of our forebears. Some of my ancestors were in major wars. Um, he says these instincts were derived from over 2 billion years of evolution that compel us to improve our species. And he says we've not regulated our numbers. We've not used the rule of law in controlling major aggression. And he wanted to unite the U.S. and Soviet Union as political partners. Uh, he says human intelligence can devise solutions for population control uh, and the perfecting of our species as a shepherd of life on Earth. And this gets a lot into what you could consider technocracy and eugenics and things like this as well, too. Yeah. Um, he says, I recognize the differences which separate my understanding of reality from that of relig religionists who interpret the Bible and other ancient documents in a literal fashion. So while he considers himself a follower of Christ, he distinguishes himself from those kind of folk. Um, he says, it's probable that humanity possesses even now the knowledge needed to establish limited but effective world government. That knowledge must be propagated in the consciousness of all mankind, and that increasing crises may make mankind willing to accept a system of limited world law. Uh, he, he further adds, he says, I am the originator of the Georgia Gadstones and the sole author of its inscriptions. I've had the assistance of a number of other American citizens in bringing the monument into being. Uh, and uh, he says he hopes that the stones merit a degree of approval and acceptance down the centuries. And wow. uh, uh, he he mentions uh, two citizens of Elberton that were not sponsors but gave assistance. And he mentions Wyatt Martin, uh, who had enlisted community support for a small public park as a site of the monument. Uh, he adds that to control our population is crucial and that reproduction is no longer exclusively a personal matter. Society must have a voice and some power of direction in regulating this final function. And he says each national government should have a considered population policy. The need is urgent and should take precedence over other problems, even those related to national defense. Luke's over here nodding his head at the moment. Yeah. So he's on, he's on board with Robert Christian. Totally. Yeah, he's on board. Totally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, he says, no nation having regulated its population should be expected to burden its citizens with the unwanted surplus of improvident neighbors. I, I assume that's more in a, a, Robert, or a Donald Trump kind of, you know, yeah. all those rapists coming across the border. Right, right, right. Um, it says, a, a few generations of single-child families will make dramatic improvements of living standards. Um. He says that controversy rages over the acceptability of abortion as a last resort for eliminating unwanted pregnancies. This may subside somewhat as we better understand the nature of life and discuss further the philosophical question of ensoulment or the acquisition of human nature by a fertilized ovum. So he was all for abortion. Well, yeah, and he was giving a rationale on how we could talk ourselves into that it was good. He says early yeah. – now, this this is interesting for a very highly educated – this is a medical person, okay? Uh, this is a surgeon who's writing this. He says, early in gestation, we resemble earlier evolution species. Only late in pregnancy does it resemble human. So so then it's okay to kill it if because it's like, you, resembles you, a squid. Or a seahorse or something like that, then it's okay. Cause squid, it would, baby. To me, it's a very medieval look at things, you know. Yeah. If right. it if it resembles a seahorse, then you can kill it like a seahorse. So, but that's his argument. Um, he talks about cloning and human genetic material in each cell make abortion make arguments of abortion foes silly. Uh, we must pick the abortion as a lesser evil for rape or incest, 
Uh, he says we need a common new engineered language, common for people and machines. Uh, he, he says when the cent- <laughs> when the central cluster of Guidestones was completed, our sponsoring group was disbanded. Okay, so this was a okay. group of people who were with him. Um, he says uh, nations are burdened by the social monetary cost of raising children uh, produced by irresponsible and adequate uh, parents. Uh, and he says 500 million people may still be too many. Wow. So that may be way too much. Uh, <laughs> he discouraged reproduction in those carrying human disorders. Uh, positive eugenics for breeding extra capable people. And people with good genes but poor parenting could transfer the kids to others uh, as part of beginning the domestication of our own species. So this is very much like Brave New World, I would say. Yeah. In this state, he says we should consider making the right to vote conditional, imposing educational requirements. Um, he says prayer is good in schools and elective religion courses, but it's essential that religion teachers are prepared to present the subject matter in a manner which will be acceptable to enlightened minds. Uh, unemployed, unemployed people should be forced to relocate. Uh, everyone should have an identity card with a thumbprint. And this is in 1986. Okay, if I bore you, let me know. I just a little bit more. I I find this is great insights into the yeah, mind of this man. It is fascinating. Um, it really is fascinating. Although Americans have traditionally favored liberal immigration policies, our present circumstances now demand major changes. Which the 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 points like this really come up later in evidence I found from this from this gentleman in Iowa that he was behind. Uh, he says it's possible to develop genetic manipulations which will create new life forms to enter the self-regulating processes of evolutionary selection. Um, a reasonable allocation of rationing of the care we can collectively afford, favoring those individuals who continuing lives are the most valuable to society. So I guess if he was here today, he could be on the death panel. Uh, yeah, yeah. So first of all, the 500 million people, he, he even makes, like you just said, he makes a statement that 500 million may even be too much. But it sounds yeah. like from the what you've read that he didn't want to go out and you know, the other six and a half billion people now. So he didn't want to go out and kill six billion people. Well, but maybe he, gradually yeah. reduce the population over a gradual <laughs> period of time. Sort of like a hiring freeze, you know, yeah. or a birth freeze. But now some of these things could be a little bit more aggressive. I mean, sterilization appeared to be acceptable uh, for him. I'm assuming he's a realist and he knows that conflicts are going to reduce numbers of people as resources go down. And if you don't replace them, that that's going to sort of accelerate the downward cycle too. But I, I think the indication he gives elsewhere is that as things get more dire, and he felt like they were going to get extremely dire, that you would have to take more extreme measures. And that's why you have world government or world court. They could make the final hard decisions like that. Now, he felt it was going to become more dire because of popul- uh, too many people? It's just too much, yeah, too okay. much stress on the system. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and Luke, I, I have to tell you, you know, I am empathetic with the fact that, you know, sustainability is not a bad word. I mean, I don't think it's bad that we stop and think about the imposition that we put on the world and make wise decisions ourselves on on being able to be self-sufficient and be wise and these kind of things the question is when you put it in the hand of a technocrat to make the decisions 
right. uh, you know, and you're not one of the favored groups. Uh, <laughs> what do you do then? So it's one thing to encourage voluntary responsible living. It's another thing to start, like he says, having world courts and things like this to start, uh, you know, make making it happen. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like the transhumanist thing, right? I mean, they talk about transhumanists talk about all these wonderful things that we're going to have. We're going to become half uh, robot or we're going to have cells that are going to be nanobots and all this kind of stuff. And they talk about how wonderful that's going to be. But the thing is, is that not everybody is going to have that. So who do you, right. who, who makes those decisions yeah. on who gets that or who makes that decision on who, decision who lives or dies? I mean, no, not not the lives lives or dies thing, but who gets sterilized and who gets mandatory abortions and stuff like that should be the biggest degenerates of society. You know, the ones that spit out here ten go, kids. Here you go, Dr. Future. Well, <laughs> the my, the my, ten, uh, ten illegitimate children, and, and uh, they're still going, right, and there's the, no laws to impose right. on that. Like the, uh, like the unemployed, for example. They should well, be the first ones. Self-sufficient. Right, <laughs> not unemployed, but self-sufficient. That's right. Well, I'd be gone too, so that would take me too. Yeah, that's always scary when you've got other people making decisions on your behalf without representation, right. and that's that. That's really becomes the theme of all this. The thing is, this gentleman appears that he is trying to save the world in his own view, and he feels like it takes severe, dire means to do it. And um, he proclaims to be a person that's a follower of God, but would rather not really put it. He's, he's almost like a deist, if anything, in that he doesn't really trust putting it in God's hands to resolve matters. And uh, uh, he's willing to take some pretty extreme notions to do it. And he also feels uh, properly equipped to make the decisions of who the people are that are acceptable. To, you know, like I said, uh, he, he wants to get rid of those who are carrying human disorders while breeding extra capable people. Uh, all, or people with good genes. Very familiar. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, anyway, but he talks about uh, having a world court that must be enforced by collective military action. These are all things right out of his book. Uh, extreme nationalism and fanatical political religious faith can be tamed through persistent appeals to informed re- uh, reason. Um, he says... It would be helpful in bridging the chasm between the foundations of the U.S. and Russia if we could reinterpret our religious tenets in a manner that would appeal to self-proclaimed atheists. Hmm. So if you can make Christianity in a way that's acceptable to atheists, that shouldn't be hard. Um, but, uh, you know, at the time, he's, he's seeing Russia as an atheistic community and always will be. And now we see Russia as a group that's dominated probably by Eastern yeah. Orthodox or Russian Orthodox views. He never could have foreseen that, you know. Right. And so well, you might the time have this, that he wrote that the Soviet Union hadn't fallen. Yeah, yeah he could have yeah. had all these grandiose plans in place because he wasn't able to predict uh, what they call them dark dark swan events uh, that that change things. Um, and so anyway, he he talks about religious teachings are subject to evolution as they impact with expanding knowledge. You know, really, religion takes a back seat to scientific knowledge and reason, and then they're to get in line, I guess, to help sell it to people. Um, He mentions that all pathways uh, finally lead to God. Um, In the long course of history, various religious traditions have accumulated many incidentals, some of which have outlived their usefulness. 
Like the Pharisees of old, they fail to restate valid beliefs in harmony with, evol- harmony with evolving knowledge of secular fields. So um, he, he'd like to sort of get those out of the way. He talks about later about forming sort of a one religion where Christians could contribute maybe the Sermon on the Mount, and you know others could, like Jews, could put in the Ten Commandments and things like this. Yeah. So, um, well, my second point was going to be was about all this really smacks of the eugenics movement. Yeah. And it sounds like that's really just what that it's really just out of that playbook. The the eugenics movement being this huge movement that really was like the nineteen teens and nineteen twenties right. in this country that in that uh, had a lot of states that actually and some had laws on the books until the nineteen eighties. I believe North Carolina did. Where they were steri- they were still sterilizing black people in the in like the nineteen sixties, right? Because right. of these laws that had been put on the books, and 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 what people don't realize is that a lot of the laws that Nazi Germany implemented in the thirties were copied over from laws that had been implemented in the United States twenty or thirty years before. That's right. That's right. And and the foundations were a lot of the ones that had been bankrolling this. In fact, if I remember right. Didn't the Rockefeller Foundation support a lot of that work that was uh, the basis for a lot of the Nazi eugenics work? I believe there's something to do with the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute or something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. I have to look back into that again. Yeah, but... yeah. And I think I think Hitler just sort of gave it a black eye in their view, you know, yeah. and exposed it a little bit more than than what they wanted to do with it. So, so anyway, they, these are some of the things he talks about: filtering the best of all religions through a fabric of contemporary secular understanding to sift out that which is faulty, discordant, or no longer relevant to human needs. Uh, And the purified essence of religious experience can become the foundation of a world society. Um, And religious teachers are now living a golden opportunity to join scientific leaders who are theistically oriented to reinterpret their treasures of traditional belief and practices uh, whose elements are best suited for inclusion to human reason. And uh, I think you know, I see that happening already. I mean, I already see the merging of science and a lot of religion to come up with some kind of pseudo thing. And of course, eugenics and eventually the uh, um, trans transhumanism program is to basically make men God uh, in that respect. Right. And that's sort of the, the rationale they use. Uh, it says every, every nation's got to get a rational ter- population property to balance uh, balance it. Increasing population pressures will make society uh, uh, a punishable social crime to mm-hmm. to have kids, you know, outside of their limits. Um, he he concludes the book by saying that the Georgia Guidestones enc- encourages humanity to put a limit to human numbers, but that 500 million may exceed what eventually proves to be the optimal size for the stabilized human family. So. Um, so wow. again, five hundred million may be too much. How much more? Who knows? Yeah, but that's too much. Little. Too much for them. That, that's that's far too little. That's a that's a lot of people yeah. that that fall into the uh, defective category. I would well, say you would be looking at, I believe, some of the statistics that I've looked at. Like, eight, I think eighteen thirty five, the world reached one billion people. Now, how they actually calculate that i'm not sure but i think that's the statistic there Mm -hmm. so you would be talking about something maybe 
the population of the world of 500 million would have been somewhere around maybe 1000 AD possibly. Because <laughs> you got to factor in stuff like the Black Death and the 1300s yeah. and those kind of things. So you'd be talking about the pop the, that would probably be around the population of the world then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And the New World hadn't even been populated yeah. with Europeans yet. Yeah, and we're talking about the Middle Ages. If that tells you anything, I'd, right. I'd say a good uh, probably 3.5 billion would be perfect. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's all. That's all Luke would kill off. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, only about, you know, uh, 2.7, 2.8 billion people. Yeah. No big deal. You know, Stalin and Hitler would have to take a back seat to you because they, they weren't anywhere near that. Right, yeah. Luke's going to be a real, like, real genocidal maniac when, uh-huh. <laughs> when, he, yeah. when he finally takes power. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, no, I'm, I'm just going to live my nice little quiet life and be misanthropic someday. There you go. Yeah, you're misanthropic. <laughs> what <Whatever, laughs> Well, let's talk about a little little bit about going to Iowa and tracing these guys. Yeah. And you know, is do you, about, do you about, want to reveal about, any of the names of the well, people? Well, that that's the only thing that the producer who couldn't join us tonight he just had a yeah. he had a baby boy, so he's already increased the population himself. Yeah, well, there you go. That's part of his resistance to R.C. Christian. He just had a baby boy, <laughs> uh, so he couldn't be with us tonight. But he's asked. Uh, you know, and and really sort of spilling the beans on what we've done a lot of blood and sweat uh, over. Yeah. That that uh, people check out the documentary if they want to see the gentleman's name, but uh, they're going to get a lot of other stuff here uh, to show that we know that you know that we have the goods on what's going on. By the way, are you going to talk a little bit about how we got the documents from R.C. Christian in our hands? Did you want to yeah, discuss please. that? Yeah. Let's talk about that. Yeah, because that was done before we left Alberton. Um, we had a number of fascinating interviews with the players that were involved, and uh, only one real key player was deceased at the time, and that was the guy who oversaw the project from the from just the granite making process. He worked directly with Wyatt Martin. You know, once the money was there to to see it done, we talked to his son, uh, but uh, but but supposedly, according to that man, his name was Joe Finley. He never was told the name of R.C. Christian, the the real name. Wyatt Martin was the only one. But uh, we talked to some other key players. The One of the other most tense things you'll ever see on camera is our interview with this uh, very kind Southern gentleman, Wayne Mullinex, who actually um, dug the foundations, including where the time capsule would go. Uh, but the foundations for it all, and he sold part of his property uh, to put the gadstones there, and actually um, um, still grazes his his animals up there. Just very uh, very cordial kind of gentleman, uh, but a very interesting at times, almost a little tense interview in a in a friendly way, um, because as we started talking about the process, and uh, you know he. He talked about how they all were, you know, they're all stonemasons, so they're all high-level masons in the lodge, and and uh, so they were used to doing things sort of on the quiet anyway. Uh, but when we, we started talking about the time capsule, which is uh, this flat plate, and, and in fact, people referred to it, Dwight Martin and others, as a, as a burial marker, which is even more menacing when you think about it. Yeah. So what's, you know, what or who was buried there? In, in the burial marker. Um, but it has a, it says time capsule on it. People can go see it. And it, 
and it shows a date of when it's to be opened, and it never was carved in it the date of the opening. And so right. we right. we started asking him about about was there a time capsule down there? And he refused to tell us. He, he the way he answers, he's it's very coy, but he he's sort of giving an indication like you know there is something down there, but he's not going to tell what it is. And we asked him, well, when's it supposed to open up? And at one point, he sort of gave the indication, like, I'm not going to tell you. And other one's like, I don't know. And he mentioned Mr. Finley as one person who knew, who was dead. And we asked him, you know, is it going to be opened up? And he sort of gave the indication it would. And he said, well, how are you going to know when it's time to open it? And he just sort of raised his eyebrows. So that is a, it was a fascinating discussion to uh, sort, sort of get into what's down there. And, and even more so, shortly after that, all this stuff's starting to happen in like a 48-hour period. We're getting all these interviews from all the key players, and they're all giving us bits and pieces of the characteristics of R.C. Christian, if they happen to seem or or this or that. And then... Um, Mr. Mullinex, who we just interviewed about this, had talked about another gentleman who played a key role, who was the guy who was sort of Mr. Granite uh, and owned the Granite companies there in Elberton. And from what I recollect, I think they sort of insinuated he was one of the wealthiest men in Georgia. And he had, he had some role in this. And we weren't aware of it. His name was Frank Coggins. Yeah. And so we went over to his house. And you can't really see it on the camera. He, you can see him on it, and he's a striking figure. That's why people have to see the documentary because um, he's he's a sort of heavy set gentleman, but he's very ill, and he's on he's on oxygen, so he's right. struggling to breathe and talk. And but his house was something that you might expect of somebody extremely wealthy. You really can't see it on camera. There's big marble columns and big marble bust of things, and um, it was just a I don't know. Very, very interesting. I hate to use the word creepy because he was very polite, but just different than what I was used to. Yeah, sort of a blue collar type. Eyes wide shut or something. It it had a little bit of a vibe like that. Yeah. Okay, but um, there was there was somebody younger person who was there taking care of him. I don't know if it was a younger spouse or whatever, but I don't remember. But uh, he was you know very polite in the little time that we were there because he would get tired. After a while, he's struggling for air. Uh, and he says on camera that he can't remember. He's not sure that he actually contributed money for it, or, or or like land that he you know helped provide the money for the land to be procured. He says some people say it is. I can't remember because it, it had been thirty years, uh, and he was in poor health. And we had some other evidence that showed that it appeared likely he probably did uh, provide for the property, but. One of the things he did do was really try to promote the Guidestones when they were first talking about installing them. And if he was, in fact, one of the richest men in Georgia, I think I remember him talking about them, him owning, building and owning major resort cities throughout Georgia that were really in his name. And so he was a you know powerful figure. In fact, you can see a picture in the documentary of his picture with Rosalind Carter, uh, Jimmy Carter's wife. 
Right, yeah. And uh, so, you know, he, he was a powerful entity. And uh, he had some role. Because there was discussions. We, we actually procured documents. And this is how we got to the documents. Um, they mentioned in this interview that they still had the construction documents in his office. And so we had asked to see them, and they said, sure. And so we ride over to the the industry place, and here are these file cabinets. So you know, it's a small package. But the actual drawings from the hand of R.C. Christian. Wow. Oh, the original drawings, including some things that didn't make it into the guidestones that were planned, all of them written out in his hand, either personal handwritten or typed. And it's just this mother load of things. And we had an appointment we had to leave almost immediately. And so we were able to photocopy a couple of them, and we had asked his secretary to photocopy the rest of them and send them to us. And sure enough, I think virtually everything I had noted on there, I got in the mail. And still have the actual letters and drawings from R.C. Christian uh, giving some additional rationale. I mean, it, it has, if you go through it and pour through it, it it's time-consuming. But you find out things like there were certain features that had been planned to be put in for the Atlanta Freemasons or the Atlanta mm-hmm. Masons, and we don't know quite why certain features that were put into it. They mentioned a pyramid top that had planned to yeah. go on to it that had to be omitted for cost. And af- That would have looked cooler, I think. Well, it, it, <laughs> I saw, this is one document that, that didn't get back to me. I remember seeing in the record a drawing of a very, very shallow pyramid top on top of the Gnomon Stone, but it didn't make it back into my files. But regardless of that, we were able to procure old television footage from when it was dedicated back in 1980, and that's part of the documentary where you can actually see it where they unveil it. And there's some photographs of the model that R.C. Christian built to take to uh, Mr. Finley about what he was planning. And sure enough, you can see that pyramid top. It's a little flash of the picture, but you can see that planned pyramid um, that that did did not make it into the final uh, feature. But anyway, we got all of these drawings, and I just went and poured over them, getting bits and pieces of information about the gentleman. But we got information where... Mr. Fenley and Mr. Uh, Martin, the banker, took lie detector tests and confirmed that they were telling the truth, that they hadn't invented this story and concocted it. And uh, But there was there was even some promotion. They had PR people come in, and they were talking about having people like Gene Dixon or other people who were specialists in paranormal or other kind of futurist to yeah. come and talk about the mystery of it and really trying to play it up. And they were going to make it for all it was worth, uh, the Gadstones. Uh, and that was on the Elberton end, you know. R.C. Christian was sort of, in a pure sense, trying to just take his ideology and promote it. But yeah, uh, They wanted to promote their town. Right, yeah. right, right, right. So, so that was one thing that we got. A few more clues on R.C. Christian from the letters. And, um, uh, and then the, the amazing thing was the document that we got in the construction documents that it gives the indication that something that may have been put in the in the time capsule. And when I took a look at that, it just absolutely blew me away when I saw that was on it. And I don't know where it came from. I asked uh, Mr. Coggins' secretary um, where it, how it got in there with the construction documents, and she didn't know either. 
Okay. But it's it's an amazing. I don't know. Is that? Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I want it to, to, and I believe that the, you know there's some links there with the uh, like the Rosicrucians. Well, which have come up by other researchers with it. Yeah. Um, do you want this is shown? Actually, it's shown on the uh, documentary, but I can read a few things out if you'd like me to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Please. This is this really gets pretty weird. Yeah, it is. It's strange. So again, it's a it's a typewritten. It's an all capital typewritten letter in the construction documents. It says to whoever comes upon this presenting, contained herein are keys that have been awaited to be placed here in proper sequencing and in proper order to announce the return and activation of those events of prophecy that signal these events. Those who have guarded this great mystery and have guarded the evolution of the human species itself are returning. It has begun. This monument known as the Georgia Gadstone shall find threads into the revelation of its mystery in the name R.C. Christian, otherwise known into that contingency that is responsible for the erection of this monument as Christian Rosenkreutz, 1378-1480-something. This presentation of keys upon the finding of it is to be delivered to the Alberton Star. That's the newspaper locally. The Alberton okay. Star is to deliver it to the Atlanta Rosicrucian Society. The Rosicrucian contact number is one. That number is derived from the synchronistic mystery of, and it gives a number in Atlanta, uh, 404-294-4172, which I called, and it was the Atlanta Rosicrucian Society. Right, and to make the point there that you called this in, what, 2010, 2011? Right. And this document was from 1980? Yeah. So they still had the same phone number? Right. <laughs> 30 years later? That's reasonable. It's, yeah. Well, it's it's an older gentleman that, you know, yeah. that's the head of it there. It says, it's only those with the understanding of the rose and its return who will be capable of deciphering the codes and the keys that are contained herein. Unto this great mystery shall in due time be unveiled, likened unto she whose great portal reads only, Know thyself. Until the unveiling of her wisdom shall indeed the bridegroom bearing the knowledge to the perfect blending of the red, the white, to bring forth the gold, and thus the purity of the rose. It shall bloom again. This monument has now been activated by that which was to come forth into its activation and technological understanding, and many shall come forth into this portal to awaken and thus and be thusly activated. There you go, Luke. Your portal, your portus there. Well, hold up now. <laughs> uh, when you say keys, are we talking? They sent you know since uh, the Rosicrucians have their little symbolic rituals and stuff like that. Are we talking like actual keys? Or are these uh, individual items are, inside the? Are you asking me? Well, well, I mean, it says in the document just keys, just vaguely keys, right? I'm reading you exactly what it says. This was in the construction documents. It concludes by saying, You are greatly loved, mankind. Once we saw through a glass darkly, but soon we shall see face to face. Do not fear. We are with you through the coming changes. Where do you think this letter comes from? Do you think that it comes from one of these guys that built that commissioned to build this? The ones that we've been talking about, or is this just some maybe a, a kook, or just someone that is um, trying to promote their own kind of like secret society? Any of the above is possible. Yeah, any of the above. Uh, this was just in the construction documents. I sent an email back to the secretary saying, 
look in your construction file that you copied for me. Look at this and tell me if you know where it came from. And she confirmed, you know, that it was there. And she says, no, I have no idea where it came from. And I believe the producer, Chris Pinto, actually asked the the uh, editor of the Elberton Star, and he wasn't aware of it either. So don't don't know. Have no idea. Uh, it's a very interesting and cryptic letter there. And it the way it's written, if it was legitimate, it sounds like something that you would find inside once you dug the time capsule. Which, you know, it was all a construction folder. Yeah. Um, we did not have that when we talked to Mr. Mullinex. It would have been very curious to, you know, share that with him and see what he thought. So, anyway, that's some of the stuff that we had just from the Elberton visit itself. But of all of this amazing material and more that we haven't talked about, the key was finding a potential identity of, of the person or people behind the, the whole Guidestones itself. And it, that took us from the Bible Belt to the Corn Belt and uh, <laughs> to the heartland of America and a little little small town. Uh, not so small town, but uh, uh, it led us to some key figures there. What did you find out in that small town? Well, um, first of all, what I found out about the gentleman who, who lived at the address that we saw was that... He was an amazing person on his own behalf. He was a famous surgeon in town, uh, a prolific inventor. Uh, he, in fact, it's very interesting. Uh, he had invented a type of rotary engine, which is not not a trivial kind of invention. That would be like inventing the steam engine, okay? And he yeah. got a patent for it, and his date of filing, which shows his address and everything else, the same one we had, was two months before he went and met with the Elberton people. So that was a very strong, as a public document that shows two months before he was living at that address. I later was able to find other documents of his political contributions that list the same gentleman at the same address in 2000, uh, 2002. So through the entire period of his communication with Wyatt Martin during the construction, he was at the same address that we found. And this gentleman was born in 1920. Uh, he served in the military for a while. He, he uh, came out and became a prominent surgeon and doctor, um, very beloved in his community. But he was really, uh, he was much more than that. Um, not only he was a deep philosopher, but he was very big on conservation being a conservationist and preserving the future. Uh, and uh, I found something else that was a really a, just a mind-blowing letter he sent to a newspaper in, in I think it was Tampa, um, that really sort of put the pieces together when we met some people who knew him in Iowa uh, that we went to go meet. Okay. And uh, um, so the, the other gentleman, by the way, uh, who was the name in care of. Um, when I called the the publisher of the book, uh, Common Sense Renewed, before I said anything about the name and I asked about the book, he says, oh, yeah, and he gave me the same name 
that was the name that was on the the care of document. Wow. Wow. And he says, "Yeah, that's his book." And he he wow. he shared some more stuff <laughs> that that later through we we think maybe somebody may have talked to him later because he changed his mind and decided not to come on camera. But we had other independent confirmation. Uh, there was a gentleman who was in the publishing business with him in partnership in some things, and he confirmed that that, that gentleman had was responsible for that book, and we have him on camera uh, saying that he was involved, and that's the same name that's in the chest. So that ties the book to a name in the chest. Turns out this gentleman was the head of the main newspaper in the very same town where R.C. Christian lived. So you have a prominent citizen yeah. and central figure in town, and the main newspaper head, who later became the for, for a while he was the head of the Iowa Daily Newspaper Association. Um, they're the two names that we have connected in Wyatt Martin's chest. And you and you've proven that these two gentlemen knew each other. Well, that was what was helpful was when we did the interviews. Because we interview um, a gentleman who is a circuit court judge, a very high-level judge in the in judge chambers, uh, on camera, and he confirms that his nephew, who was the or his uncle, who was the man who owned the newspapers, uh, that he he had a friendship with the other gentleman that was R.C. Christian, and that they would actually socialize together and have events at his uncle's house, and he was there, and and. What's amazing, we talked to all these figures in this Iowa town, prominent figures, and it blew everybody away to think that these gentlemen they knew, city fathers, had this sort of alternate life that they were doing. But when they thought about it, they thought, and they said, yep, we could see this as possible because they were both very, very deep thinkers and visionary men. And they said, we're not totally surprised. We just had no idea what was going on. You mentioned the political donations, and there's one very revealing political donation. Well, at least I believe it's revealing. Yeah. And there's also an association with an inventor as well that's very revealing. Yeah, well, and although I had gotten my own data and I didn't put my cards on the table until the discussion took this way, one of the other really interesting interviews we did in Iowa was with the historian of the the local town, and we had it at the library back in the records section, and we interviewed the historian of the town who knew both men, and we also interviewed another gentleman he knew who was an older man that had been in the city for a long time and knew these folk. And, um, well, first of all, let me say the historian presented information uh, from the guy we knew as R.C. Christian, and we go, we went through these documents, and I found, I found a document with a picture of this surgeon, and it all has the same dates and times with all the other information we have, and he talks about population control being the number one concern that he had, and the effect on conservation and ecology and humanity, and it was right in the right in the writing of like a the main uh, descriptive biography summary of this man in this town in Iowa. He was almost verbatim out of the, the Guidestones book and things like this. And this is what this gentleman was saying privately. We went to his graveside, and I found his grave, and the main thing he had on his name on there was that he was a conservationist on his graveside. 
So we're very confident that that you know every way we've measured, we we know for sure who this gentleman is. Um, so we, we got additional information from them. But the, the other gentleman that was with him that had known him for a while had mentioned that at the country club where all of the you know successful uh, professionals in town would go in the town that this gentleman who we identify as R.C. Christian was a was a big supporter of David Duke. Yeah. Now, <laughs> up to this point, people who have speculated on R.C. Christian looking at the population control world government assumed he was some far left-wing socialist, you know, an extreme leftist or, you know, commie type or something. Well, it turns out all of the information we had was, was supporting right-wing causes. And he talked about his support of David Duke and and other things as far as like, you know, race, preferential races and things like this. And I had this article I had found before then from the Sun Sentinel in Florida. And again, I think it's, uh, I think it's Orlando where, uh, this columnist mentions, um, he, he says an, uh, an Iowa physician, and then he gives his the guy's name and address, same one we had, their town. He says he reacted to my attack on those who attribute base sentiments to anyone who wants to solve America's problems first. Uh, and then he said that Patrick Buchanan and David Duke are among the few public figures who speak for American interest in this new era of internationalism. Duke, he said as my skin crawled, this is the columnist writing, uh, published, voices many beliefs held by reasonable Americans. It is unfortunate that more acceptable public figures are not pushing similar views. And then he, he says the rest of the doctor's letter talks about protection of American workers, criticized job quotas, and why there should be strict limits on immigration because the environment, workforce, and education system can't afford more people. He says America should help other nations help themselves, not shoulder the world's burdens. Let me just jump in real quick and say, anybody that doesn't know, and I don't know if Luke knows who David Duke is, <laughs> no but idea. he he was he was he isn't anymore, but he was like the head of the Ku Klux Klan at one point. Yeah, Grand Dragon. He he actually yeah. was known for running around in a Nazi uniform on campus, right? I, and uh, he was known as the most extreme white nationalist, right. and he tried to take it mainstream. And he actually served a term in the. I guess the uh, Louisiana Congress. Yeah, it was Louisiana. Yeah, ran for governor, and he ran against an extremely corrupt op- opposition, and everybody voted for the guy they thought was a crook to keep him out. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but um, the the other thing that uh, that this gentleman mentioned, who who knew this guy that we knew as R.C. Christian very well, is he said that he bragged about being an associate of William Shockley. And William Shockley is a guy who has a Nobel Peace Prize. He's a laureate for having invented the transistor. So he really is what gave us the computer age in Silicon Valley was William Shockley. But he was later known, I think from the 70s on, as being staunchly into preferred races and showing how blacks and others were of lesser IQ and race and, and policies for you know separating out the races. And uh, he he said that the man that we identified as R.C. Christian was an associate of his. And it turned out I even looked up uh, David Duke's biography, and he dedicates the book to William Shockley. To William Shockley. Wow. So it's like a little, like, 
six degrees of separation going on here. Exactly. And this gentleman asked us on camera, I wonder if he was part of the small group of Americans that were involved in this. Yeah. It, it almost seems like circumstantial evidence, but it seems like he, he, he may have been. Well, you know, we're, we're going on this gentleman who knew him well, and the historian's right there with him and, and could vouch for the gentleman that, uh, that you know, this guy promoted his association with Shockley, and it's totally consistent with all the other data that we had uh, about his public announcement of supporting David Duke and things like this. And so all this kind of stuff is just, again, the first time the public's hearing is right now on your show. Um, but, right. but, and then the, in, in the documentary, you can actually see, you know, you can see documents, you can see the, the testimonies and there's a lot more there you can see that's backing up what I'm telling you right now. In the time that we have left, what are some of your general conclusions on what you have researched? Um, what you know, like, what conclusions have you reached on these guys and who they are or were. You know, one thing that sort of helped give me a right frame of mind is when I, one of my future quake shows I did, I did with a fellow Mitch Horowitz. Uh, it was called Occult America was the book he did. And he's a very great guest and um, interesting. Luke's, book. Read, Luke's read that book. Yeah. Books. Yeah. And, and, and what you find out is, is that, those of us who were raised in the Bible Belt in more of a fundamentalist Christian home, like myself, uh, still a practicing Christian myself, um, but you've been raised to sort of accept this sort of mythology that, Christ- that America has always been really, really hardcore Christian in its fundamental philosophy and beliefs and mindset and things. And what you find in, is part of accepting all that is you have to discount all of the other aberrant data that's always been under our nose, at least from when I was a kid, and and just sort of take that out of your mind because it doesn't fit the paradigm. And what this book does is it talks about there's, there's been an occult element that's always been a key part of America, and he, he was not doing this in a sense promoting it or, or, you know, trying to do something subversive. He was just acknowledging it historically. And, in fact, he makes a very prominent point. I mean, you know... Um, if I remember right in his work, I think there have been more Ouija boards sold than Monopoly boards. Yeah. And uh, I think... Especially now, probably. Yeah, things like hoodoo is actually, uh, you know, practiced by a significant portion of our public. Like, the second or third biggest religion in America was like some kind of mail-order cult religion. And there's on and on all of these examples, the New Thought Movement, and how it came out of, uh, you could find roots in spiritualism, which was a, a big thing. If you go back even just in the early 20th century, spiritualism had a huge effect on our society and public. I mean, Abraham Lincoln was in seances in the White House. Yeah. And so when you recognize this, and then you think about guys like, um, um, oh, I'm just, I, I'm thinking that the secret history of America, um, What's, help me out here, Adam. Talking about secret history of America, you talking about like uh, uh, the yeah the the philosopher uh, Francis Bacon? No, the the metaphysicist from 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 California. Uh, what's oh his name just escapes me. The uh, the the secret history of all ages, Manly P. Hall. Okay, yeah. Manly P. Hall. Um, Manly P. Hall had a pronounced effect on people in the first half of the twentieth century. 
And the man we identify as R.C. Christian was, was born in 1920. His cohort was born in 1918. In fact, that's one reason why we sort of separate the man who we can confirm as R.C. Christian versus the other is because some of the key documents from the person who identifies himself were after the other gentleman passed away. So we could sort of say who is in a primary and secondary role. But uh, Manly P. Hall and these others sort of build a mystical undercurrent alongside a, an upper veneer of what we consider regular Christian, Judeo-Christian belief. And, and in fact, even in the Masonic Lodge, which has been a part of our society, it was actually a much bigger deal before the current generation, but all that stuff coexisted. So why I'm saying all this is that in the world of these gentlemen— they were very, very learned gentlemen, deep thinkers. They could perceive stuff that we would consider really counter to primary Christian theology, yet while going to church every Sunday and not really seeing any kind of disconnect there. Yeah. So, you know, and I'm not, and I'm not trying to make excuse for them. I'm just trying to say how, how it comes about, is that you can have people who see themselves as real city fathers and being— you know, real Christians like R.C. Christian claimed himself, meanwhile dismissing most of the tenets of the faith in his book he writes and other things. And whether it's in the Lodge or whether it's in other places, this goes on all the time. goes on with, with most people all the right. time, a cognitive dissonance over what they understand and believe. So these gentlemen were well-learned. Uh, he's mentioned in other sources, R.C. Christian, that he had toured around Stonehenge, in other places, and the world's monuments, and it gave him ideas for what to do. He thought he was doing something for the betterment of mankind. But unfortunately, with technocrats, when they have this vision, somebody always pays the price. Yeah, and, utopia never really works out. And in his vision, it turns out overwhelmingly the majority of the world would pay the price uh, right. for this. And some stranger would be empowered over you. And while I'm, I'm empathetic to the fact that the Earth has so much resources, and there really should be some some forethought and rationale to our popul you know, our own families, our size, what can we support, what what's reasonable uh, for these kind of things. You know, he's talking about draconian actions that are basically a totalitarian police state, basically. And um, so, you know, those are some of the things that I see. With with people like this, is that that happens right under our nose, and we see these people and would just never dream that they entertain these conflicting thoughts. And you know, a lot of these people are sitting in government. You know, when you get these people in private, uh, I mentioned Manly P. Hall. One of the stories he tells about this mysterious man who helped save the the Constitution. You know, so it was I think it was a Constitution Declaration of Independence from being signed. Uh, when it looked like the, it was, the group was going to break up. Well, Manly P. Hall is the source of that story, and it ends up being told by by Ronald Reagan a number of years later. And there, really? there's several other indications that Ronald Reagan was familiar with the writings, which, you know, they're both from Southern California. They would have been, yeah. been familiar with their work because people are always hearing him talk, and it was very much metaphysics. And, of course, Reagan and his wife had astrologer, who they would make all their key decisions on what the astrologer said was the timing to do it. Including, I think he was actually inaugurated in the governor's office something like midnight because the astrologer said that that was the time to do it. I don't know if you remember that, Adam. 
Yeah, I don't, I don't remember that actually, but I do know about the astro- the astrology <laughs> thing and Nancy Reagan. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, well, Doctor Future, let me ask you. Um, you know, the time that we got left here, uh, where can people get the the documentary? Okay. And uh, what you, when is it going to be? It should be readily available soon. But where can the people can people get it? Where can they like if they give any questions and like contact you or well contact Chris Pinto? I talked to Mister Pinto today. And uh, um, he says that they should be from the duplicator, you know, the full boxed uh, sets in bulk, yeah. available on Monday or Tuesday of this week. So by the time you post this, they, he may have them in hand and uh, can start shipping orders out the door. So timing is good for this. Um, there's only one place right now where you can get it, and that's at his film site, Adullam Films. And so if you go to, and let me spell this for everybody, Adullam, A-D-U-L-L-A-M, films.com, adullamfilms.com. The name of the documentary is called Dark Clouds Over Elberton, E-L-B-E-R-T-O-N, the true story of the Georgia Guidestones. So if you get lost, just just uh, put that in the search engine, and you should find it, and that's the only place to get it. It is a top quality. It's a full two-hour documentary. Um, you'll learn everything you need to know about the Gadstones there. And uh, stuff happens right before. Discoveries happen right in front of the camera. Uh, and uh, I think people will find it fascinating. And I encourage, yeah, if, if anybody wants to contact me, um, my email address, you can send it to my old radio show email address, Dr. Future, D-R, Future, F-U-T-U-R-E, at futurequake.com. And I'll have a link on the site uh, to your website and also to Adelton Films, and I'll put a link to the YouTube uh, trailer as well okay. yeah. on, the, on the show notes. Right. There is a trailer on YouTube for it, and I would appreciate the listeners to spread the word about this. Uh, there's been a tremendous amount of work and research, and the background research that I've done and, and in the filming that uh, Mr. Pinto's done, all his editing, it is a, it's TV quality or better as far as the production values. And uh, I'm sure he would appreciate the support. I would, too. And uh, even if they want to pass it on to some other shows, you know, there's a few little ones out there like Coast to Coast. Uh, You want to ask them if they want us on there or, or, uh, you know, Alex Jones or something like that. (laughs) That Uh, guy. Yeah. (laughs) Those are just copycats of Conspiranormal, but... um, yeah. But anyway, I hope hopefully this will be a shot heard around the world and people will hear it first at this show. Well, the question that everyone wants to know, Doctor Future, before we let you go, is when is the uh, the 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 Time Life book set going to be going to be available? Oh boy, it's yeah, it's like the Columbia Record Club convention. <laughs> really. A penny, you get five hundred <laughs> records. Uh, yeah, um, the. The book series that I'm trying to finish, it's called The Holy War Chronicles, A Spiritual View of the War on Terror, is now it appears it's solidified into a six-volume set. And I uh, am in the middle of the next-to-last one. Uh, uh, Actually, uh, volume five will be the last one. Volume six has sort of been pre-drafted, but um, I'm in the middle of volume four right now. And volume three and volume four are extremely lengthy because they're the history, first, of Judaism and holy wars, and the second is Christianity. And uh, it sort of establishes a trend uh, that I elaborate on of what's going on in the war on terror. And volume five is, 
it starts naming names of current figures that are actually using old school ways to refight old battles with the with the Muslims and and it gets really crazy. I mean, it's crazy stuff in there. But I think you, from what you have perused of it, uh, Adam, there are lots of revelations in each one of these volumes. I, I think you would agree with me, correct? Yeah, I would. Because um, I don't want to waste people's time otherwise. Uh, but there's stuff that, that hopefully will radically change people's views and their worldview from reading this. Um, it caused a spinoff. Uh, when I argue that uh, a few guys in turbans and caves are not actually going to threaten the world or change the world, the natural question is, well, then who should we be worried about? And the answer I found that is that they were not people with crazy accents or, or weird beliefs or dress, but it was people who look and dress like us and even set our own churches. And that led to another book I've already drafted called The Hidden Hand uh, Against the Godfearers. And, Which I think has some links to what we've talked about tonight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. And that'll be that'll be released right after. And so what I'm planning to do is to release all these books in two month increments uh, after the drafting is finished. And so I am just up to my elbows and writing every day, adding new content, stacks of books. Appreciate everyone's patience. I am alive. Uh, this Gadstone thing <laughs> is something that was started way before I started writing the book series. And, right. and it was an open-ended thing that got shelved for a long time due to some overwhelming commitments Mr. Pinto had. And uh, we were twiddling our thumbs until we went back and got the uh, Iowa footage last year and got the editing done. And now, finally, the five-and-a-half-year project is sort of like President Ford said after Watergate. The long national nightmare is over. <laughs> uh, well, I have I have seen the documentary, and it is very good. It's very well done. It's a great kind of like detective story. And uh, to, to, in my mind, I would say about like I'm 99 percent sure that uh, you guys have closed this case. Well, and maybe uh, maybe it will raise some more questions for further research. Like, are some of these other fa- I, I know of either one other Nobel laureate that somebody mentioned maybe connected to R.C. Christian. Um, are there some other people that have some tentacles in this? Will this cause when this story passes around? Will other people come forward and say, I'm part of that group? Uh, will some family members come through and say, I knew a little bit about this? And uh, that would be awesome. And, of course, I'd love to go see that time capsule dug up and find out with this letter and something. Of course, unless it releases something horrible on the earth, then I'd feel feel bad about that. But Yeah, I think it's just going to be the final proof of the uh, – Final proof that uh, the Anunnaki were real or something. I don't. I don't even know. Yeah, are those are those are those minion characters that I can't figure out who they are? <laughs> well, Luke, is there anything else you want to ask? Or, uh, well, I, I saw to, to to me, you know, from what you described, from uh, what went into the capsule, it kind of rung a bell with alchemy there a little bit. Yeah, you know, using yeah. the colors and the and the product uh, is is gold. Right, you know, the, or the the top, the last thing listed is gold. Right. So, uh, it's, it sounds to me like they have some kind of exclusive material, you know, for the Rosicru- uh, Rosicru- Rosicrucians. You know, they're trying to keep from everybody. Well, you know, I, best I understand it, that whole transmutation was a metaphorical symbol of a transformation, change in the spirit of people. That's like it's not just an evolutionary change, but some kind of radical change in people, and uh, maybe that's what they're talking about. That that'll happen. 
through something connected to this mysterious monument. And um, I guess we'll, we'll only know when we get that open. Uh, Mr. Mullinex wouldn't confirm who it is that will open it or when. Uh, yeah. But maybe there'll be a groundswell. Maybe there'll be a big protest out there saying, you know, tear down this wall and open up this uh, grave marker. Yeah, let's do it. Let's get it started. Let's see what's going on. Let's see what, <laughs> I just hope it doesn't end. I don't know if you remember that Prince of Darkness movie with John Carpenter. <laughs> no, well, I know what you're talking they about. They open something, and then they regret having opened it up. I just hope it's not something like that. But, uh, <laughs> Zombie apocalypse. Yeah, or worse, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, Dr. Future, well, we're going to close out this segment. Thank you so much for being on. And uh, for all the awesome information that you've broken on this show, and this this is some uh, interesting stuff, people. So go out there and check out this uh, this documentary, and um, we will be right back on Conspiracy Normal. Welcome back, you nutcases. <laughs> That's right. That was uh, a <laughs> that was quite an interview. We talked about George Guidestones and talked about eugenics and uh, talked about and talk about weird how I, how beliefs. I favor and, those beliefs. Yeah, how you favor those beliefs? And how so, we're gonna get some more hate mail? <laughs> yeah, we probably will. I'll just give them your email address. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> I like, just forward it on. Looks like it's time for so email, email Luke at. <laughs> <laughs> And we're not going to keep everybody too long, as though the show has been long enough. I uh, want to thank Scotty Roberts for coming on, talk a little bit about the Paradigm Symposium, and uh, also, of course, Doctor Future and uh, the great Luke, who's like it's been like well, it's like three weeks in a row. I mean, it's just awesome, I, I dude. Know, I know, <laughs> I know. I've had to clear my schedule, man. And yeah, you got everybody hitting you up too, like like just I, getting text message after text message. Not, not to brag on myself, man, but I'm interview. For whatever reason, I've just become like too popular, like too popular to handle. And then you got me, you got me hitting you up all the time. Hey, you coming to the you show? Coming? You, you coming, coming, dude? You coming, coming tonight? <laughs> you got to pin pin Luke down, oh, man. Come on, man. Come on. You really need to be here for this one. <laughs> I think I say that about every single yeah, one. Yeah, you say it about every one. <laughs> because like, it's, it's pertinent information, my friend. I'm like you're lear- you're learning things. Oh, well, if I keep staring at my phone the whole time, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe true. Well, I mean, you know, you can listen and yeah, you yeah. listen to text I, at the I same time. Up, it's possible. I picked up some of that. Picked up some of it. Yeah. Well, next week we're going to have on Thomas Fusco, and we're going to talk about kind of the science of the paranormal and where he thinks that the paranormal actually comes from. And I have been reading his book, Behind the Cosmic Veil, and I can tell you, it is some deep stuff, man. Uh, it's all about space-time and the influence of space-time, of things coming out of space-time and influencing our uh, our universe, and that's the root of the paranormal. And that right now, kind of going through to where he's talking about the Bible. So it's going to be another interesting interview. And then we're going to take a three-week break. And then we got some other inter- interesting interviews coming up after in August so and in September. So uh, just want to thank everybody for listening. And, of course, as always, we are on the Fringe Radio Network. We are on IPVNradio.com. Uh, and we are also on conspiranormal.podomatic.com. And I'm on SoundCloud as Turbo Slut. That's right. Yeah, Turbo Slut's here in the house. <laughs> <laughs> I don't ever plan on getting any kind of music attention, but... <laughs> well, hey, you know, 
I still need that theme song. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> At least I've made some steps in that direction. All right. Steps I, have been made. Yeah. You heard it here on Conspiracy Normal, people. All right. Well, that's it. We're just going to call it a night, guys. Thanks a lot for listening to Conspiracy If vengeance in progress is ours once more, now that we have a new Tehran bomb, it's nice and quick and clean and get things done. Away with the sesame, but no less valued a property. No sense in war, but perfect sense at home. The sun beats down on a brand new day. No more world will tax the day. The sun beats the lamps on a big flash in the light. The cloudless moon is whisked away. At last we have more room to play. Our systems go and kill the poor at the night. Gotta kill, 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 kill the poor. Kill, 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 kill the poor. Kill, 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 kill the poor at the night. your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line 
prop or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.